Welcome to the Basin Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. And I'm Alex Hedke. All right. Welcome, Alex. This is your second time on the podcast, right? That's correct. How is it only two? I also was on the live episode. Oh my god, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. That was a fun time. That was a great time. That was great. Uh, Alex, the thing we know you best for is being awesome, but the second best, (laughs) the highest thing we know you for is being one of the co-founders of the Guild of the Rose. Yes, the Guild of the Rose. I started actually as the local organizer for the Kansas City Rationalists, which gave me the experience and the drive to then go on to create the Guild of the Rose with other competent rationalists like Matt Freeman and David Yusuf uh, and our illustrious Raven who is on the discord regular listeners will be very well acquainted with the Guild of Rose but when we get to the transition between the first half of the show and the second half of the show we will talk more about what that is and yeah. why it's awesome yeah sure thing okay cool and we'll link to the, the previous episode that you were on when it debuted to the world yes yeah, yeah. that was great yeah. We want to start with feedback from uh, our previous, our last episode. I'm trying to do this more often, but I was involved in the feedback. I was watching and participa- participating. I forgot how fun Discord is. So yeah, Discord is great. It's a, uh, it's a good place. <laughs> there was a lot of themes, a lot of similar themes to the conversation. Yeah. But I liked. Uh, so we, we got unlimited oranges. It starts with my disordered takeaways, and it's a bullet list. And this was very common. A lot of these things. Yeah, it was anyway, very representative of the server in general. Exactly. So unlimited oranges. My just dis- my disorganized takeaways from the episode. And correct me if I'm wrong are that post-rats, one, dislike naive utilitarians, two, think that many systems are too illegible to comprehend well and skeptical of any claims of comprehension, think rats are ignoring Chesterton fences, seem to hold a reactionary position against becoming a straw Vulcan, advocate touching grass, overall frustrating that the position appears to be an overcorrection against becoming a straw Vulcan slash naive utilitarianism mixed with pseudo-Luddite Tradcon woo. I might not be (laughs) being charitable, but that's that's how it appeared to me from the episode. I think we take that from the top, but I, I, I loved the uh, slashed straw Vulcan naive utilitarianism, pseudo Luddite, Tradcon, woo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So naive utilitarians. I don't think that she was really saying that that's how she felt. We we talked about the beginning. That's not how humans operate. Right. You know? I got a, a number of people asking on the Discord, like, why didn't you push back harder? We know this is, you, you don't agree with this stuff. And I was like, well, I didn't really have a fucking clue what post-rationalism is. And I wanted to know, and we had... 75 80 minutes with her to figure out as much as we could and that boils down to like maybe an hour of podcast and i just i wanted to know the things and that meant avoiding going down deep rabbit holes where we really dissect stuff and dig deep on stuff it seemed to me a waste of the time that we had available if we were to really disagree about those things and hash them out i just wanted to know what this stuff is yeah i think we mentioned ai very early actually very we're talking about utilitarianism i was like it's what we built when you're designing an ai god and she was like to the effect of don't get me started and i was like well yeah. i'd love to but i actually yeah, yeah, yeah. want to hear your take on this whole thing so like we could have derailed and just hit that the entire time right right and so you're right the, the there goal were was, like three or four different things that could have been an entire episode right so the goal was to let's hear you out and i also i just my money my, my initial thing with talking to somebody we have no rapport with we We've never met mm-hmm. it's like i'm not gonna invite you to come on and then like immediately be like hold on shut up that makes no sense let's let's go there right yeah. i and mean so we do this a lot on the podcast when we had the monarchist on he was just telling us about all the benefits and awesomeness about monarchy and we we're like cool interesting please let us know more like I, I i like getting a lot of information and then i can decide what i want to take from that mm-hmm. and leave the rest behind and i believe all the rest of our audience are equally smart and can also do that thing so I, you know, we can dissect this stuff later. Just hit me with the fire hose at first. Yeah, but I, I, I can relate. You know, there, there are other podcasts I listen to where it's like, come on, you know that's wrong. Hit that longer, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah. you, you push back on that. That's absurd. Right, right. Uh, there's, there's a, 
philosophy park uh podcast i like listening to but there's this one guy and he's like now a co-host and i hate all of his takes <laughs> and they're always so bad yeah. and it's like he, it's like the absurdest hypotheticals and it's like oh so we're not talking about what we were what we we're talking about a minute ago let's talk about this new entirely different thing that has no basis in plausible reality yeah why don't we, i was going to derail and t- give some of his examples <laughs> and just point out how they're like physically wrong yeah not just like thought experiment wrong but impossible anyway that's not where we're at see this rabbit holes yeah exactly yeah, very easily I think that was a pretty fair summary of um, of her positions, and a lot of them struck me as failing to engage with what rationalism is, especially when the socialism thing came up, and you can't predict complex systems kind of thing. I'm like, this is a core teaching of Bayesian rationality. Mm-hmm. If you think that post-rationalism is post that, then that is a misunderstanding of what rationalism even is, because we've been saying that from, from the very beginning. Yeah, I, I think some of the other commenters had it about right that it's more of a reaction to the culture and yeah. less about the, the yeah. school of thought. Because the culture really is, I will completely admit, has strong Spocky vibes, even despite the fact that we've been warning against that for a long time. Much like I think post-rationalism has very strong woo bullshittery vibes, despite the fact that hopefully they are trying to warn their people against the crazy woo shit. Some of it anyway. Some maybe. of it anyway, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Uh... Anyways, uh, I, I did reach out to her and ask if she wanted to come back for another episode or two to dig in on stuff. So maybe we'll get that. Maybe it'll be only for patrons because we got other things to talk about, too. We can't just become the post-rationalism podcast, right? That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, our post-rationalism series. Stephen, please. I'm getting distracted. Let's, let's get back on topic. All right. So I think too many systems are illegible to comprehend or comprehend well and skeptical of any claims of comprehension. It's weird. We've been doing this show for coming in on the better part of 10 years, I think, mm-hmm. it seems like. And uh, I, I don't know exactly what the rationality scene has, exi- has its exact pulse on, but we have claims of comprehension, but also well-specified, like, here's what we don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here's where, here's where I'm not pretending I know a lot. You mm-hmm. know, I think I think we're pretty good at that. Yeah, if, if someone overspeaks confidently, someone will be like, are you sure? Be like, oh, you're right, I'm not. Yeah, and to whatever extent that's even true, because we obviously have increased our understanding of many complex systems, including the human body. Regardless of how you want to quibble about how antibiotics were discovered, we know how they work, and we can create new ones. Mm-hmm. So we've comprehended a certain level of, co- of complexity, and we're getting better and better at that. But to whatever extent systems become illegibly complex, we have been talking about how to approximate things for a long time. Like That's the whole idea behind probabilistic thinking, mm-hmm. is... Some systems, even if you can comprehend them, they're not worth trying to dig down all the way to the bottom uh, for back the napkin calculations. Being able to approximate uh, is a useful skill, and it's teachable. I just googled Slate Star Codex posted the Seeing Like a State review in March of 2017. So it has been at least six and a half years since the rationalist community was like, hey guys, many systems are too eligible to comprehend. Let's be wary about claiming that we can comprehend them fully, you know? Admittedly, I don't necessarily expect someone outside of the scene to be caught up enough to know what happened six years ago, but also... I don't know. If you're going to call yourself a post-rationalist, know what you're posting of? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's I don't want to sound like an elitist jerk, you know? It's a split-off subculture now, and I don't expect them to be up on everything. I'm fine with sounding a bit like an elitist jerk. That's uh, fine. I mean, I would call myself post-Christian because <laughs> I was raised very Christian stuff, but, like, I don't know what the Jehovah's Witnesses are saying about when the world's going to end now. I stopped paying attention to that 20 years ago. Probably saying the same shit they were saying 20 years ago, but that's a different... But we don't know, <laughs> but right? But they have different yeah. excuses now. Yeah. My impulse towards charity wants me to try to defend their, that position a bit more. 
maybe they saw that, you know, yes, that post exists and it was popular, but we're still overconfident or something, right? It's like, yes, we say, we make noises about things are illegible, be careful, but we still, we don't act that way. Mm -hmm. That might be the perception, right? So it's one thing to say that we're doing, that we're aware of something and another thing to say that we're doing it successfully. Maybe they think they are doing it successfully and they're the only ones and that's why they're post-rationalists. That's a damn good point. Could be. Yeah, it could be like, you guys say that you're doing this, but you're still not. The bottom line here, I would say, at the risk of diving into my own personal feedback on the episode, is that you're either making a falsifiable prediction about the errors that the rationality community is making, in which case, great, you're basically doing rationality, or you're not making a falsifiable prediction about what we're doing, in which case, you're just touting an invisible dragon in the garage. And mm-hmm. I'm curious as to where they, how they would respond to that question. This is where I think I kind of came back at the end, somewhat jokingly, but kind of not, where I said, like, you know, if any of this post-rationality stuff turns out to work better than what we've got, we'll just subsume it. Yeah. And it'll be car- become part of rationality. Yeah. This is the art of winning, you yeah, know, yeah, and doing things yeah. correctly. Exactly. If you find something that works better, absorb it. This is one of the major reasons I want to, once my group house is set up, look into how we can bring ritual back into the community because I think it is actually pretty important and I don't know how to do that without all the failure modes that come with most woo. Mm-hmm. But I do think group rituals are actually pretty goddamn important and i didn't realize that 10 years ago you didn't realize that five years ago i've enjoyed watching that evolution with you we had a whole evolution we had a whole uh conversation about ritual and you were super allergic to it i was was too yeah and i've grown a bit less but i haven't actually gone to any of these big solstice things yet and uh they sound fun and you know valuable it's hard when you come out of a fundamentalist religion to to get over that you fought in the trenches you've seen how bad that gets yeah yeah the, so the next one, uh, they think rats are ignoring Chesterton fences. I, I kind of laughed at that one, and you are too. I think because I don't think we invented the term, but we definitely popularized it, right? Yeah, I mean, Chesterton invented it, but <laughs> it's... Yeah, the reason it's in the subculture is because of how much rationalists talk about Chesterton fences. Again, just to, to, to steel man that point, like, we do also say, well, fuck this, you know, biology meat suit. Fuck, uh these arbitrary restraints on some technologies or whatever, right? Let's, let's pedal the metal. Let's get there. Let's transhuman business. We'll figure it out. If there's a problem, we'll solve it when we get there. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, fast, we we do that. Yeah. We do that about just, we do that with just about everything except for AI. Yeah, yeah. Right. So to, to the defense of us ignoring chest defenses, it's not that we're ignoring them. It's that we see them and step over them. Right. Yeah. But I also <laughs> kind of see the point that like, Hey guys, stop stepping over all these fences. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I see this most often in like social dynamic things. Mm, Lots yeah, of yeah. rationalists, will approach social dynamics especially when you start talking about ask versus guest culture or you engage with rationalists who are on the spectrum they will lambast all the social conventions that people work with on a day-to-day basis ways that we subtextually communicate with each other or the the rituals that we perform to basically do the equivalent of a digital handshake mm-hmm. in in conversation and rationalists don't, apparently don't have time for that in a lot of ways, or they see it and they're like, I know what's going on here and I don't want to do it. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to put the work in required to deal with it. And so they just cast it out and they often become cringy people to interact with and be around. Oh yeah. Um, like I understand them. I like hanging out with them, but when I have to bring them into a context with non-rationalists, it's very awkward. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned the like digital handshake I feel like I'm towing the line really well. I can't remember the last time for sure that I sent a message like this, but that I even received a message that was just, hey. Because, like, what do you mean, hey? Like, do you want to <laughs> hang out? Do you want? Do you need something? What, what, like, hi, now yeah. what? Right? What are we doing? Mm-hmm. I, but to jump in and be like, 
you know, you haven't talked in two weeks. Are you available Thursday at two to help me do something? Like yeah. that's also a bit rude. There's there's got to be some middle middle ground. Yeah, between but, zero and a hundred percent. Yeah, uh, but just just the, those empty handshake messages. That I found those tiring when you know at the advent of texting. So yeah. like, hey, is okay as long as you immediately follow it with another message that right. gets to the meat. Yeah, yeah. Not waiting for a reply. Yeah, that's know. that's my biggest example of ways in which rationalists will indeed overstep Chesterton fences in the realm of social dynamics. Mm, yeah. And let's see, next one was uh, seem to hold a reactionary position against becoming straw Vulcans. Yeah, no, no challenge there. I think that's true of of the position. Yeah, being straw Vulcans kind of sucks. Uh, it does sometimes happen, despite the fact that we try not to let it happen. I understand the whole reactionary thing because I have for most of my life had a very reactionary position against ritual. Mm-hmm. I understand it. it's legit complaint. Just to torture this metaphor, I think we're less straw Vulcany and more steel Vulcany when we are Vulcany at all. That we might be intentionally Vulcany because it's like let's let's save ourselves the trouble of fifteen minutes of back and forth to get acquainted every time we talk on the you know over text or something, right? Yeah. The existence of a straw Vulcan and a steel Vulcan implies the existence of a titanium Vulcan. <laughs> Can I be that? <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah, great. Okay. Uh, advocate touching grass. I also agree. Yeah. That, that's valuable. And I think that's what you're talking about with ritual and stuff too. And frankly, you know, like there is, I don't know if a lot of people are saying this anymore, but this was popular for a while of like, let's just move all onto the, onto the matrix. Let's, you know, uploads. And mm-hmm. I've, I've never been a huge fan of that. I've, I, I've put it that I've had a sentimental attachment to reality. Mm-hmm. If I learned this was a simulation, I would be fine with that, but I wouldn't want to go to the next level in just fully I, I would miss this one right this is where i grew up i like you know the universe might have, have its weaknesses but i live here and I, I i'm familiar with it you know yeah. i also like the idea of touching grass the guild of the rose has a skill chain on our skill tree entirely called touching grass nice. <laughs> i thought about this the the guild of the rose several times during our conversation but then it would take a while to like like again i wanted to get her full yeah, digest sure, yeah. of, what, of what she was at but i was like you know half these problems are being addressed by this cool organization we're affiliated with called the guild of the rose you can understand my frustration listening to that. <laughs> Ariel, if you're listening to this and are like screaming back at the computer being like, this is not what I meant at all. You guys are representing me all wrong. That is totally legit. And we seriously would like to talk to you again and get all your stuff on the air about this because yeah. this actually is pretty damn interesting. Doing my best to get you right. So if we're, if we're getting you wrong, that's, that's important to me to know. It's also interesting because the post-rationalists seem to be reacting to a lot of things and exploring a lot of different stuff. So like... I'm sure there's many that agree with her and many that also don't. It seems like a very wide variety of people. Same with rationalists. That's true. But rationalists, you can, like, there's some things you can assume about most rationalists. True. But we're not even settled, like, 100% as a community on, like, AI doom or gloom, right? <laughs> That's true. What so. is rationality? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> rationality is a collection of techniques. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's about, it, yeah. It's about winning. It's epistemic No, uh, it's about, epistemic about falsifying beliefs. <laughs> <laughs> You had replies, personal replies to the thing. Yeah, and I, I think it really comes down to a definitional thing. Like we we just talked about, we just kind of talked about the definition of rationality, which I think is the crux of a lot of this. I ascribe to the whole rationality is system systemized winning uh, definition. Like it's about accomplishing your goals, whatever those goals happen to be. I would make it a bit more specific that I think it's about taking effective action in the world aligned with your goals aligned with your values because those are those are three distinct levels of operating in the world that i think are addressed by rationality and i think it's what makes the core of rationality so great because it requires you to interact and interface with the world instead of just sitting on your couch uh, intellectualizing about the world like the 
rationalists of old used to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you said guided by goals, guided by values. values what yeah. was the first part? Effective action. Effective action, guided by goals, guided yeah. by values. I love yeah. that. That That is the best definition I've heard, and that's what I'm going to give from now on. I appreciate that. Happy to help. I feel like it might be too vague and <laughs> petty on the backy. Like when sometimes when people like define rationalist fiction, it's like, well, you know, it's fiction that's well written with good characters that are smart and think through things. I'm like, you basically just said it's good fiction. Like that, yeah. that's that's so I, I would say, a little too much. Yeah, I would say a good rationalist fiction is in which characters take effective actions mm-hmm. defi- uh, defined by their goals defined by their values they don't they don't do things that are they don't take actions that are overtly stupid they at least have a thought process that determines their action instead of just what the plot requires um they have goals that are that determine those actions and those goals are aligned with their values in some way with that definition conan the barbarian counts as rationalist fiction and it's not i mean no, no, yeah. it's definitely yeah. not. There's a vibe to rationalist fiction. <laughs> Fair enough. I, 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 th- I would say there could be like a, um, yeah, you're right. There's it might, definitely it, a vibe. The thing is, it, it might be too patty on the back to say that all of that is is like, yes, that's rationalism. But saying doing that with intentionality, that's rationality. So right or rationalism. I think I can cleave this for us. So right. the whole idea behind rationality is, I whenever I talk about it to people, I separate the art of rationality from the community of rationalists. The community of rationalists in their pursuit of this art of rationality have coalesced on a number of tools, a number of pieces of culture, a number of vibes, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so to speak. That is a big contributor to what gives rationalist fiction its particular vibe is the community that gathers around this general idea of rationality. And that's why I would say you cannot define rationality with excluding those things because otherwise it's like defining Christianity as loving your neighbor. Yeah. Strong analogy. I like it. It is a strong analogy, actually. I might go so far as to say that rationality is a lot more generic than Christianity. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's not trying to tell you what to believe. It's just a framework for how to go about finding out what you believe. And it's more flexible. It's a flexible framework for how to believe. Like if you find something, if you find a technique that helps, that gets incorporated. It doesn't get rejected for not being part of the canon. You know, definitely. I, I talk about effective altruism like this, but rationality is also kind of a tower of assumptions, like how Scott Alexander describes effective altruism. You have certain levels of assumptions, starting with the most foundational core ideas. And then as you go up the tower, you start to get more specific ideas. Like, you know, maybe we should use Bayesian probability. Maybe we should listen to what Eliezer Yudkowsky says about AI. Maybe we should donate to open philanthropy. Maybe we should care about, uh, I don't know, raising the sanity waterline. Um, you can take issue with any number of those layers, but you still have everything below that to contend with. And I would say the most fundamental layer of rationality is this this idea of taking effective actions aligned with goals, aligned with values. And then maybe on top of that, you have the toolkit of rationality that we've used, like Bayesian probability theory and uh, science and skepticism, questioning your own beliefs as much as, as, much as you question other people's. Mm-hmm. And as you get more specific, you get higher and higher up this tower. It sounds like post-rationalists have issues with higher levels of this tower and not necessarily the lower levels. Um, although I wouldn't want to misconstrue their beliefs too much more without them present. 
And that would also, again, explain why they continue to keep rationality in the name if they like the lower levels, but not the higher levels. Right. Yeah. And honestly, the lower levels are the ones mo are the ones most important to me. Yes, same. You know, if the upper levels change, it'll be because the bottom levels helped realize that there's something else to focus on. That's yeah. why I like rationality, because it iteratively self-improves uh, itself. It gives you guidance on how to change it, mm -hmm. which is why I think post-rationalists are just rationalists who are in the process of refining rationality to whatever extent uh, they are making empirical claims about the world. <laughs> right. What, what did you call it? The pre and post thing? Maybe post-rationalists are people who are haven't quite gotten back into coming back to rationality yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That, that sounds borderline offensive. I apologize if it was. <laughs> no, that's good. It's cute. Rationality in general has been an amazing thing in my life and the lives of many people I know. And I think the most life-changing aspects of it are the more foundational things. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to talk about today if we've moved on from post-rationality. Let us pivot to the actual topic of the day. Okay, great. Right. So the reason I bring all this up, um, it helps to provide some background, is that ever since I left Christianity, I've been looking for ways to find meaning. Like We all have this, this drive to find out what life means. Like Even if you take issue with that framing, you can't deny that the urge is there. Like, that's the whole idea behind pretty much every religion and narrative framework out there. And that is, what, what are we here for? How should we go about living our lives? It's been difficult to find that because so, one of the problems with uh, assigning a meaning to life or choosing a narrative framework is it's very difficult to break out of it if it's wrong. Mm. Mm, that's the failure mode of religion. That's the failure mode of tribalism. I really like rationality because it's kind of a, a meta narrative, so to speak. It helps you figure out what narratives to choose, if any. It's able to iteratively improve itself. It gives you tools with which to reflect on your own beliefs. That has been a, a great source of comfort for me as I am navigating the world. But that leads me to my ultimate conclusion that... You know, there, there really isn't any inherent meaning to the world, so what do we do about that? I've read a really good book. Those of you who have done any amount of philosophy will have heard of this book, but it's called The Myth of Sisyphus, written okay. by Albert Camus, a French writer and begrudging philosopher. That's a good title, Begrudging Philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my title for him. He, I don't think he ever called himself a philosopher, but uh, he very much was one. If he, anyone were to ever refer to me as a philosopher, I would demand the append begrudging <laughs> to the front of it. <laughs> I, I think Camus would approve from what little I know of like him. I'm only weighing in here because I feel like I have to, not because this <laughs> is my thing. Yeah. Fair enough. I like it. So he was contending with the problem of nihilism. Slight content warning about the topic of suicide. He was contending with the problem of suicide. He thinks that that is one of the chief concerns in the world of philosophy is why don't we just end it in the face of a nihilistic universe? It's not like people who got into philosophy were jumping off cliffs on mass, right? <laughs> no. But he was saying that it seems like this is where all philosophy points to, like yes. you guys just aren't doing this because you're, you know, cowards. Sort of, yeah. So a lot of philosophers will indirectly deal with this in various different ways. However, for the average person who encounters these philosophies, it's very often not sufficient, uh, especially if you're an intelligent person 
and you try to maybe take the answer of existentialism, where you say, okay, well, I can create my own meaning. And it's great. I have actually done this before. But the problem is, like we talked about earlier, how it's just kind of kicking the can down the road. Of, you, know, you, don't, you haven't actually solved the problem of there being no inherent meaning to the world. Well, because um, there is no inherent meaning in the right, world. Right, exactly. Yeah. And yet we have this drive to find meaning in the world. Mm-hmm. So Camus calls this tension, this paradox, the absurd. Uh, it is the, the human need for meaning in a universe that can provide none. And so he, cu- he concludes that if we can't make our own meaning, how then shall we live? And he uses the example of Sisyphus from Greek mythology. Uh, Sisyphus was a terrible dude in Greek mythology, but he did do a, the badass thing of chaining death and preventing people from dying for a period of time, which, uh, according to the mythology, had a bunch of bad effects, which I'm sure Ariel would uh, have some has something to say about. If, um, if if the god of death was chained down and like you know I got burnt up in a house fire and I couldn't yeah. die, that might be a that downside. Would be a, that would yeah. definitely be a problem. In, in Greek mythology, that's exactly how that shit would play out, right? <laughs> yeah. So. But Sisyphus kept tricking the gods, and the gods got tired of his shit, so they condemned him to roll a boulder up a hill. I absolutely love that. There's a guy that just goes around tricking gods, and that's what he's known for. <laughs> yes, that's that was the, like he tricked them many times, and this was just the final straw. What better title to have than troller of gods? <laughs> yeah, it was. He's a pretty whatever his other flaws. He was a pretty badass dude, but he was condemned to roll a boulder up a hill for eternity. And every time he rolled it up the hill, it would roll back down. Camus compares this to our everyday existence. We're just going around and around in circles. Everything we do, all of our nine to five jobs, all of our interactions, everything we try to, uh, everything we do to give ourselves meaning is just, uh, just running around in circles for no reason. Sidebar: This is actually one of the things I love about the movie everything everywhere all at once Mm. i basically think of it as myth the myth of sisyphus the movie where you are dealing with death and trying to the decision of whether you should end it in light of a meaningless universe and spoilers real quick i loved basically that aspect of it i Mm -hmm. loved the entire second act where you're like oh awesome she is nihilism personified i love this and then the answer they came up with at the end really annoyed me yeah i i found it not only unsatisfying i found it Mm anti-satisfying i I loved the movie except for the resolution yeah what specifically think happy thoughts basically (laughs) answer so yeah so the answer that Camus gave to nihilism is unfortunately for you basically (laughs) that um so i to really give away the the game here is he says we can look at the universe see that's meaningless so what we can still care about things anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of his final lines of the book, Myth of Sisyphus, was uh, the only way to deal with an unfree world is to live your life, live a life so free that it's ver- your very existence is an act of revolt against the meaninglessness of the universe. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of correlated with everything everywhere all at once is message of we can do anything we want. Nothing matters. Mm-hmm. Which is a, the corollary to Jobu Tupaki's line of Nothing matters, so I'm just going to throw myself in the bagel. Yeah. Um, Which is the corollary to the line, nobody exists on purpose, nobody belongs anywhere, everyone's going to die, come watch TV. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> That's basically one of my favorite conclusions in philosophy, kind of throwing your middle finger to the void, mm-hmm. uh, staring long into the abyss, and when the abyss stares back, just give it the middle finger. And I kind of like that attitude. It gives me a lot of satisfaction 
in whatever sense satisfaction is warranted in a universe that doesn't care about my satisfaction. <laughs> you know, my, my answer has just always been some flavor of like fun is still fun. Yeah. You know, but but throwing in the spice of defiance into it yeah. of like, you know what? Fuck you, universe. I'm going to have fun despite this. Right. I like that a lot. I've never quite grasped what it would mean for a universe to have meaning mm-hmm. like at all. So it maybe the fact that that's an unanswerable question is part of the problem. But it's like, what what would even make you happy? If you want a universe of meaning, what would that even look like? It's not clear to me that that has a coherent answer I, maybe it's, uh, li- it's an absurd question. Yeah. Is what Camus would say. Maybe it, maybe it's like live forever <laughs> and everything lasts forever. I have an answer that I have been that I have heard and I've been toying with for a mm. while. I think Camus would not approve, though. Okay, go uh, for it. The feeling of having meaning is when you are forced to make a decision, and your decision, what you choose, has a measurable impact on the quality of life of you or people around you, like in a meaningful way, like what you decide actually matters to life results. Um, Which when you're, for example, a farmer, every decision you make super impactful on whether the crops are going to come in. Are you going to wake up this morning and go out and and plow your field? Uh, If you do good, you'll get food. If you don't, maybe you'll starve, you know? That might explain why meaning crises are correlated with like affluent nations. Yes. And I mean, that's, that's why like why some games are fun because the choices that you have to make in the game actually affect how the game turns out and other games are boring because you just push certain buttons and you're going to get the same thing no matter what. So that game is lame. Uh, Wes specifically has been telling me this is why people with meaning crises of meaning might want to consider having children because when you have a child, every single decision you make matters in some, like it doesn't, Feels it's not like going it to change their life if it isn't like a critical trauma moment, but it matters a bit, and you you can feel that. Yeah. And I'm like, huh, may, interesting. May, I, this is one of the things that has kind of kid pilled me. <laughs> <laughs> not not to throw any. Uh, well, part part of our job as rationalists is to throw doubts into things, right? Yeah, totally. I I wonder if it's not that every decision has meaning, but you're you're wired in such a way as to believe that it does. That could be it too. And it it actually doesn't matter, right? Mm. That the, the the distinction there doesn't actually matter because in your brain it's like this feels important. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it actually is. It feels important. That's what my brain wants. And I think this is one of the reasons that writing a novel feels so it's hard to do specifically because you don't get any reward for years since from the beginning of the writing the novel. It kind of starts feeling meaningless and pointless whereas if you're writing fanfic and posting it online as you're writing it, people comment on it immediately and you get that gratification and it feels like it means a lot more. I, I get the feeling you get a lot of meaning out of running the Guild of the Rose, right? Oh, yeah. So this is actually where I agree with you mm. in, a, in a certain way. This is kind of, for me, second order uh, meaning. Okay. Whereas you know, at the bottom of the universe, it doesn't give a crap whether you even feel like you have, you've acquired meaning. Right. It doesn't care that your actions actually have consequences. That's entirely happening in your head. Yeah. Um, which is fine. That's, that's great. And I am my head and I'd like my head to feel nice things. Um, but I, I can't help, but also, <laughs> okay, can we, do we have to keep that in? <laughs> uh, sorry. No. I'm a child. <laughs> Please continue. Okay. Anyways, um, where was I? You like your head to feel like nice the, things. Yes, I, anyways, um, so For once my brain didn't go there and I was wondering why you guys were laughing for a full second. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, so I, I do pursue things that give me like satisfaction, like hard work, 
aligned with my goals is great. I love it. Yeah. Um, and then I kept up at night with an existential crisis mm-hmm. <laughs> when I, when the thoughts go, go loopy. And I think to myself, oh my God, nothing I'm doing with the Guild of the Rose actually matters. The universe doesn't care. Mm. Um, it's, it's, doesn't actually do anything or mean anything. Yeah. And that's where I just say, okay, well, fuck you, universe. I don't really care about it anyway, care yeah. about it anyways. And that's a great terminus for that, for those existential crises, for me anyways. And that's um, a fair point because you do still get that feeling a lot. Anytime you're doing any major project, every now and then you have moments of like, why does it matter? It doesn't matter. Yeah. This, this doesn't change anyone's life, you know? Right. But it kind of does. You just don't see the effects because a lot of the effects are online rather than your neighbors. <laughs> right. Wes, your take on video games that ones without choices aren't fun and don't matter? Or, or what, what was what was your phrasing that you paraphrased? Yeah, basically, like when your choices don't really matter, you are going to end up winning the game or whatever it is anyway. Uh, I mean, I, I think that, that's why the Dark Souls kind of games are really nice, right? I think. Well, except for the, the game. Yes, there are there are alternate endings. But the, the endings are actually a lot like real life in that nothing makes any sense. You have no idea what the hell's happening even when it's over. But yeah. I would I would contend that games like um, The Last of Us. Mm-hmm. Where it doesn't matter what you do, it always ends the same. Right, right. Uh, that's more it's, of a visual novel than a game. That's, that's what I was going to say. Is it's, it's like watching TV, where it's like it's it's telling you a story. Mm-hmm. But I would also say, just to get it off my chest, like games like Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom, unless you just stop playing, you're going to beat the game and save the game or save the save the kingdom. Right. Mm-hmm. That's not that. That's not the point, though. Right. The point is all the fun you have along the way. Yeah. Right. And I, but yes. I, I bring that up because that's actually important. It might not. It's not about the end zone. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not about. Well, and then this was because I did this. It's like, no, it could just be fun along the way. Your your goal is to, whatever, beat the bad guy and save the kingdom. But man, hunting these lizards actually was a really fun 30 minutes. Like, right. And, and that, that's, I think that's analogous to real life. Like, Well, like in a, in a good game, like a good tactical game, if whether you choose to like go around the corner and shoot the gun or throw a frag grenade or something makes a difference to the outcome of that scenario. And so it feels like it's a meaningful decision, even though it's just a game. Good examples of what he's talking about, I think, are games like, uh, especially the third Bioshock, mm. where it would give you, like, the fakest choices in the world. Oh, right. And yeah. like, it opens up and it's like, do you want to throw a rocket, this interracial couple? And the button is like, throw a rocket. Actually, I think the only button is throw a rocket at the guy presenting. <laughs> and it's like, that's great. And that, that's fun. But how fun would it be if you got to choose to do that? Like you get to, you get to aim the rock and throw it if you feel like it. You can be you can be a prick or you can hit the guy who's being a dick, right? Yeah. Um, or you can just stand back and do nothing. Exactly. Yeah. Like giving you actual choices is fun. And I'm actually thinking of the success of games like Candy Crush Saga, which are the most mindless, repetitive games you could possibly imagine and yet they're raking in more cash than pretty much any major game corporation but those are basically slot machines right yeah yeah and they're 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 hitting something in in human psychology that's really deep and ingrained in us but they're not giving us any kind of meaning this this brings me back to what i meant to bring up about sisyphus was that there's a saturday morning breakfast cereal comic (laughs) where he's pushing the rock up and he's miserable and the next panel there's a counter and he's like woo it passed like ten thousand, right yeah that's what candy crush saga is giving us it gives us bright lights and numbers go up you grow you get past each level right right yeah and some people go their entire lives playing Candy Crush Saga and being perfectly happy with it. Uh, like, Do you think they're perfectly happy with it? I mean... Maybe they're getting meaning in other aspects of their life. It's possible, but they're, they're perfectly content with their video game hobby. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so that's, I don't want to stretch the analogy too far. Right, <laughs> it's going right. to break it very, very soon. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, plenty of people think Candy Crush Saga is a meaningful usage of their time whenever they have time to play a game. People have different different ways of getting meaning, I suppose. 
the Sisyphus thing, I think in my mind, analogizes to real life is every time you get to the rock, the rock at the top of the hill, you feel great for a second until it starts rolling back down, right? Mm. You mentioned the grind, like nine to five, but Mm. a lot of people, I think this is how we default operate and it takes a lot of work to overcome this. And it's not like I have, but I'm working on it. To some extent I have, uh, but it's, it's a constant effort. But the goal can't be get the rock to the top right? You, you might have to do that every once in a while, but the happiness can't be at the top because you can't stay there. Like I, I heard this put really well once and it was like, just imagine you don't need to work or you love your job. Netflix is loaded up with tons of stuff you're excited to watch. Dinner's almost ready. You got a vacation coming up in a couple weeks. Are you happy now? Yeah. Have you, have you found it? Is it there? Mm-hmm. If it's not there, if it's not until you're eating the meal or if it's not until the vacation... If it's anywhere, it has to be now, right? Yeah. If you keep putting it off, then you're just chasing it. It's a moving goal. It's a moving target. In that sense, it's kicking the can down the road, but you actually want the can. Yeah. And the counterpoint to that would be like, yes, you want more than just the nine to five. You want something that's, that gives you a greater purpose than the drudgery that you experience in your day, day job. But the whole idea here is that in the face of a meaningless universe, Every positive sensation you feel is just a more sophisticated version of the dopamine Sisyphus feels when he gets the boulder to the top of the hill. Then when it rolls back down, uh, he has to start all over again. So is absurdism arguing against feeling happy feelings? Uh, No, it's just saying uh, happy feelings are great in and of themselves. You can find happiness in what you are doing. You don't have to chase the happiness. Everything is the equivalent of Sisyphus rolling up this boulder. You have to imagine Sisyphus happy. Why do you have to imagine Sisyphus happy? Uh, so that's the, so he's the guy that made. Who, he's the, he's the guy the that's, that's he's the guy that uh, yeah. Albert Camus came up with this quote that says, "You one must imagine Sisyphus happy." Okay, and cool. you have then captured the idea of absurdism. Is the idea of being able to find happiness even in the face of tasks and effort that is ultimately meaning ultimately meaningless. The Sisyphus example is so good because, like, it's the ultimate boring task, right? And, like, if I was doomed to do that forever, I don't think I could maintain my cherry optimism for 2,000 years. <laughs> right. But life is variable enough where the boulders mm. are different shapes and hills mm. are a little different, you know. Yeah. But what were you going to say, Inyash? Yeah. I-, I want to know why I have to imagine him happy. Because oh, we're Sisyphus. We just, don't want to be unhappy. It's just a way of communicating <laughs> what absurdism is. Like, if you imagine Sisyphus being happy as he's rolling the boulder up the hill, yeah. you have now captured the absurdist mindset. But what if I know that he's not happy? This is a counterfactual world in which he is happy. Imagining a world in which Sisyphus is happy rolling this boulder up the hill is the state that Camus advocates for, is finding... But I would like to, to... I would prefer to know whether he's happy or not than just pretending he's happy. Oh, oh for sure. I would prefer that he be happy, <laughs> but... Yeah, yeah. So the, the whole I, the, yeah, the idea here isn't a, like an epistemological or ontological claim about whether Sisyphus is happy. Um like, we were all Sisyphus in our own way. Well, so, I mean, so it is a claim of some kind. It's saying that we should feel happy even when we are bored? Whenever you're faced with the fact that your tasks are meaningless, realize that you can give the, the universe the middle finger and find happiness in them anyways. I don't think you need to regulate yourself and be happy at all times. It's just mm-hmm, a matter mm-hmm. of, you know, whenever you get to the bottom of things and you have to have to grapple with this idea of the fact that we're all just sisyphus Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's when you can engage your absurdism and find find inherent value in what you're doing okay i mean i kind of get what it's saying Mm -hmm. but i disagree with the message in general because it's just saying that everything is meaningless so be happy 
Yeah. And <laughs> I just disagree that everything is meaningless, I guess. I see. I see. When you, when you say uh, you disagree that everything is meaningless, I assume you don't mean to imply that there are like XML tags on atoms that give no. them meaning. <laughs> no, <laughs> so, I, like, I think that there are actions one can take that have direct effects on other people and their quality of life. That yeah, if yeah. meaning means anything, it means that. Yeah. I see. Yeah, I got you. I mean, um, one, one could counter with saying the heat death of the universe, right? If you're going to be happy at all, you have to be happy with that possible eventuality, right? Um, no, I because that is so far away, maybe we'll find physics that let us avoid that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's really a relevant concern for this philosophy. It's just a matter of you find meaning in certain things. Mm-hmm. And you you find purpose. You, f- you feel good about doing all these things. You have effects on the world. That, that actually is you finding meaning in a universe that's meaningless. That is you deciding that you're going to find purpose in a, a universe that cannot provide you a purpose. Yeah. I'm not... See, I disagree that it's me making an intentional act in so much as it is me recognizing that this is how evolution has wired me. Yeah. And so I'm taking advantage of the hardware that I've been given. Gotcha. Well, the the the, the overall topic I was wanting to hit on was the meaning crisis that okay. people are experiencing. Uh, we've kind of touched on that a couple a bit. I've given you guys kind of my foundational uh, way of dealing with my own personal meaning crisis. Can I get one clarification on absurdism real quick? Yeah. Is part of the absurdity just pointing to the fact that, like, look, people are actually happy despite philosophy saying it's meaningless and nothing matters. That can definitely be uh, be part of absurdism, yeah. All right, Isn't sure. the more coherent answer just that philosophy is wrong? Well... Every time we do this, I always mean to taboo the word meaning way earlier on, <laughs> but I didn't this time on purpose because it was part of the, of the absurdist philosophy yeah. to, to explain it that way, right? That depends on what you mean by meaning, I guess. See, like, I, we've had this discussion. It feels like you were on the other side last time we had it, cause, but, which, well, is, which is great. I, I was. And here's the thing. Like, if we had this conversation before I went to Vibe Camp, I would be like, yeah, everything is meaningless. I, I don't know what the point of doing anything is. And now that I've been to Vibe Camp, I'm like, life is great. Everything is full of meaning. You yeah. know, I, I think I just need to go to festivals like that several yeah. times every year. I think you're defining meaning differently than philosophers are, is the thing. And, and that's why philosophers are wrong about everything and always have been. <laughs> why is this a job? <laughs> that's a very good question. Um, so It's a hobby. <laughs> yeah. So this actually gets back to rationality. I talked about like second order meaning. Absurdism helped you, did you say find meaning? It, or? it, it deals with my personal meaning crisis. Um, How did absurdism help with that? It articulated an idea that I had already had. And that is whenever I feel the need for the universe to provide me with some kind of meaning that I'm not getting from my personal day-to-day, my day-to-day life or my other pursuits and projects. Then I can think, realize to myself, yeah, the universe doesn't have any meaning. That's, that, that's fine. It's just an attitude shift more than anything. Does, how much does it help? Uh, it, I haven't, I, I haven't ended everything yet. So well, okay, that, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> well, please never do. No, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, have, I have no uh, temptation to uh, ever, ever end my life. If you ever, guys, if you guys ever discover I've committed suicide, know right now that it, I was, I was murdered. Okay. Same here, by the way. I want that on the record. Or there are circumstances that uh, definitely need to be investigated. <laughs> okay. Yeah. If I, if I left a note, it was forged. Okay. All right. Yeah. Don't know what you could do with that unless you want to become a detective, but avenge me, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) See, I'm reluctant to say the same because I wouldn't want people going after an innocent person necessarily. 
I mean, fair enough. I wouldn't want an innocent person to get hurt. I will communicate my change of mind publicly if I ever do change my mind. Okay. All right. <laughs> but you just said any communication that you're changing your mind is a lie. No, I said if I leave a note. Okay. All right. <laughs> cool. Of course, now with you know with this sample of audio in five seconds of or you know, fifty seconds of work, someone can just make a pu- you know public statement of me saying I've changed my mind. I'm going to die. <laughs> right. um, anyway, sorry. Derail. The more important thing that has given me a sense of meaning, hmm. uh, to whatever extent that is co- a coherent idea, is everything that I've learned from the rationalist community and the effective altruism communities. I am very privileged to have exited Christianity as I was reading the sequences. Oh, nice. So the scaffolding was literally being built as I was exiting the building or, and entering another one. Um, so that was really great. And also rationality, as I, we briefly touched on, is a self-iterative framework. So it, it, ha- it comes with a set of tools, but you can use those tools to question the framework. Um, and the framework encourages you to question it. Once you have that framework in, in place, everything else that you find meaning from can also, st- it can still provide you meaning, and you also can recognize when you're doing something that's harmful to yourself or something irrational, dare I say. <laughs> For instance, you know, the whole idea of, tra- of a transhumanist future where we can modify our own bodies, live forever, everything's great. I can use the tools of rationality to recognize if that becomes a bad idea. So I get all this hope and all this optimism from the ideals of transhumanism while being tethered by the ideals of rationality. That's what I think is missing from a lot of narratives, a lot of stories, a lot of religions, a lot of, a lot of political ideologies, is they lack a framework for self-correction. So if you pick them up without having the tools of rationality, you're kind of boned if, you're, if you end up being wrong, or you have a very uphill battle that might be paved with the blood of millions of people. That framework that laid the foundation for my life of absurdism when I have like a really dark uh, existential crisis, uh, then I have rationality, which allows me to decide what narratives to, to give my life, followed by whatever actually gives me joy and happiness and, and comfort in the day-to-day. That is my personal way of dealing with my meaning crisis. I don't know how like the whole tool set of rationality scales to the rest of the world as a solution to the meaning crisis, but it sounds like we're all kind of in agreement that there is a meaning crisis. Like mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know what to do with their lives. They don't know why things matter. I think we we have lost a lot of narratives. Like Ariel, this is one of Ariel's strongest points. I think is we have lost the narrative aspect of life. I want to bring that back. I, I think that's really important. This is one of the things I think Jordan Peterson is most right about: is the power of narratives and the power of stories. And the biggest failure mode of those, though, is once you get locked into one, if you don't have a self-corrective mechanism, you can fuck things up. The self-corrective mechanism, how? much does it allow you to change how quickly? Because if you have a self-corrective mechanism that is self-correcting wildly all the time, mm-hmm. that feels much more like flipping, flopping, and having no rudder and being completely lost with a crazy spinning compass. It has to be slow and methodical in order to keep you grounded, but also you don't want it to be too slow where you end up, <laughs> you know, with a 2,000-year-old religion that still thinks right, right. you got to yeah. cut off the tips of guys' dicks or something. Right. One of my favorite things about rationality is 
as one of my favorite things about defining it as systematized winning is if you find yourself not winning and you're ch because you're changing your mind too often or not enough, then obviously that's one of the things you have to correct about the framework, if that makes sense. I know, yeah. I know that sounds like a cop-out answer, but I like to think that I have uh, not fallen for that failure mode in my personal life. I think the reason this is on my mind is because I just reread Ayla's Why Your Polyamorous Friends Relationship Sucks post, where mm -hmm. she pointed out that um, the people who are strictly 100% monogamous are very happy, and the ones who are strictly 100% polyamorous are very happy. But like all the people in the middle that call themselves slightly monogamous or slightly polyamorous are having really shitty relationships. One of her ideas as to why this was, was like when you have a kid and you know you love your kid, when the kid throws shit on the wall, you're just like, well, this is a thing I am living with, but I'm not like having to re reanalyze every day. Is it worth having shit on my wall to have a kid? I don't know. And then you're reweighing <laughs> like whether you should have the kid or not. It's like you have a kid and you're yeah. paying all the prices and it's worth it. Yeah. And she said like people who are strictly monogamous are like, I'm in this relationship no matter what, and uh, it's worth all the sacrifices I have to make. Mm -hmm. And similarly for people who are strictly polyamorous, but if you're like, am I poly? I don't know. I'm trying it out. And like every time some bump in the relationship comes up, you're like, do I, should I quit this relationship or should I quit being poly or something? And she's <laughs> the constant reanalyzing of everything that you're doing and not having a, a defined role can bring a lot of stress and unhappiness into your life. And like, I like the narratives idea you were pushing, like, okay, I am the, the sage or I am the warrior or I am the father or whatever. But if you self-correct and you're like, okay, I am, I'm moving out of the father role. I am now going to be, I don't know, some other person. You need a lot of breaks to make it hard to move out of roles in order to have them be meaningful. They need to constrict your choices so that you can commit to one thing. That was a really good example of circle back and, and way to bring that question home. And I just needed to give you and Ayla a shout out for giving me the best quick defense of monogamy that I've ever encountered, mm. which is like, it saves you all the nonsense of like second guessing, you know, with just like with the kid thing though, there, there are, there are the extreme examples, right, you know, right. your kid murders your spouse and it's coming for you. It's like, you're not my kid anymore. Right. <laughs> right. So yeah. with, with the obvious, with the caveat of like, not literally anything is allowed, then yeah, I right. like it. Sorry. How do you allow people the ability to, move from one role to another without it being like oh today i'm the father and today i'm the jester and today i'm you know whatever i don't fucking know man oh <laughs> that's a good question okay. <laughs> that's, that's why i'm here okay, okay. I'm, I'm here to ask you guys what you think about it i think we could um, workshop that because I, I feel like you're not necessarily wearing one hat a day you know when it comes to interpersonal relationships i think one of the ways they often fail is like you try to enforce the the framework that it's had in the past, even when it's no longer appropriate. This is one of the things I like about the rationalist community, and also just the concept of community in general. So the rationalist community, Eliezer Yudkowsky, in his in his in the sequences says, ideas are always to be answered with other ideas. Never, never fire, never sticks, never stoning, never ever, never mm -hmm. forever. And that is one of the specific strengths of the rationalist community is we're always challenging each other's ideas. 
That's also the superpower of the human race is collaboration. Because on the scale of 0% change to uh, like 100% change, like 0% like fully committed, like we're not changing this at all to 100% which constantly changing, there's somewhere in the middle that is probably correct or at least some range Mm -hmm. surely Mm -hmm. somewhere between that you might one might say that there are certain ranges that are less wrong than others yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) you could say that you could say that Um, you could but maybe you should that was pretty kind of of forced (laughs) i actually really liked it i didn't think it was forced at all it was was good um but each one of us is going to err on one particular range or another Mm -hmm. and if we all come together and we compare notes on and we show each other our lives and the way we all make decisions, we can kind of average out our ideas and test each other's ideas and f- get closer to whatever the optimal range is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it's so important to have community and to have relationships, you know, have people who then are comfortable enough to, t- to call you out on your bullshit or tell you, hey, actually, Alex, I think you're ruining your life. Maybe you should change your behavior in this X, Y, and Z way. Yeah. Or and, just inspire you to try something else. Well, yeah. You yeah. know? The framing is important there, too. Well, but sometimes <laughs> sometimes it's them coming to you in a, in a position of like, look, we're friends. We trust each other. I'm, I want you to know that this is my honest thought here. And I feel like it's important that you get this constructive criticism, right? Yeah. But other times it's like, honestly, seeing how much you've enjoyed traveling and going to these ritualistic festival things, mm-hmm. I'm going to do it now like it years ago i wouldn't have you know it just it's not my vibe i like my vibe i'm gonna just do my thing (laughs) Mm -hmm. and now it's i'm I'm seeing how positive impact it's having on people that i know and respect and i'm like well maybe i'm definitely missing out on something i thought that people enjoyed that just had something i didn't have but i need to give it a shot so i like rationality because it allows you to it gives you the tools necessary to change your framework and i like community and other people because they all can have the outside view of the way you're utilizing those tools. And then once you have that, you can drop in some kind of narrative that gives you all meaning in life. I, I've got to point out too, Alex, that you've inspired me in a, in a different direction, which is mm-hmm. we, we've talked before and you've, you know, you had like the, I want to have a bigger impact. There has to be more that I can do. There's a way that to organize this culture in a way that like, you know, to actually answer the question, why aren't, why aren't we winning? Right. Yeah. Everyone just stops at like, well, that'd be too hard to figure out. Or, you know, this, yeah. this is, this is too much. And you're like, not for me. No. We'll do it. <laughs> and it, yeah, it's hard. It's work and it's fumbling, finding the right, you know, it's a new path in the dark, right? Yeah. Statistically, no one does that. Yeah. And that's exceptional. It makes me so happy, Stephen. Well, I, I mean, every, I mean, every, I appreciate you. You bet. But yeah, no, no, I, I came here to also ask you guys what your opinion was on, first off, if you agree that we've lost the narrative power in our lives, like Ariel said mm-hmm. um, and then if you conditional on you agreeing with that what do you think the solutions are to that i want to point out that in the discord there were some comments that i think were i think they had to know were were uncharitable but they i liked ariel's <laughs> comment of live your life like a story yes and many people were like a lot of people have terrible lives and stories you know like right, so, yeah. sometimes yeah, things yeah. go terribly and it's like well not that kind obviously right, <laughs> right? No, no one wants to be the snape you yeah, know yeah, yeah. it's like i you know i I pined after this girl for 20 years, then I died unceremoniously. You know, it's like <laughs> it was a very ceremonious death, though. He was just bitten by a snake and died. Like, it, was, a, it wasn't even cool. Shack. Yeah, but like he he saved Potter's life when he did it, right? Probably, yes, I suppose you're right. There was there was a moment of of helpful last second defiance. Maybe I can't quite remember. Like, but yes, he was actually def- he, yeah, yeah. He, he saved magical Britain's Jesus, and he managed to have like awesome last words to affect the future of humanity by 
changing Jesus's mind a little bit. Oh, and he gave Harry the pensive memory at the yeah. in his last breath as well. Oh, so fair, fair enough. Maybe, maybe the state isn't the point. You, a lot of people. I mean, you don't want to. You don't, you don't want to yeah. take his path to right. that necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually part of what narratives do is they show us the bad paths mm. so we can not do that. <laughs> that, that that's some a good point. people's purpose in life is to be a warning to others. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And some stories allow us to give warnings to ourselves before we even make the mistake. So I think um, that's the essence of wisdom is learning from other people's mistakes and not having to make them yourself. And those other people can be fictional. One of the things you brought up that really resonated with me and uh, Stephen, when you were talking to Ariel is Ariel was talking about how, we always have this new technological innovation. The first time we use it, it's always fucked up and people die. Mm. And Steven said, well, maybe the idea behind rationality is you can skip that first <laughs> iteration. And that's, that kind of is the purpose of stories is a little, you reading and learning from stories allows you to not fuck up as badly the first time. I think I put it as like a, that might be a goal and I was like not wanting to be like aggressive about it, but that almost explicitly is the goal because the, at the end, at the end zone of, of, you know, mo what many rationalists consider to be very important is artificial general intelligence is coming and you do just get the one shot, mm -hmm. right? We don't get to build the one that crashes, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So we actually do need to get good enough to not fuck this up. Yeah. But, the, you know, you can also do that on small scales at home. There, There is a way to, you know, just look at the ways that this didn't work out in the past. You can learn from, from history's mistakes and they can be your histories or, or, or fictional histories. Yeah, I think one of the biggest failures of the rationalist community is so many individuals in the community have isolated themselves yeah. in a lot of ways, literally and figuratively. Figuratively in the sense that a lot of organizations in the community have built themselves up into ivory towers and they're no longer engaging with normal people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but also literally, I, I know so many shut-ins within the community. Yeah. And I think they and are... think of all the shut-ins that you don't know because they're even more shut-in than the shut-in than the shut-ins you know. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I say this as affectionately and, and empathetically as possible. I think that is one of the biggest mistakes you can make, mm -hmm. uh, both in the art of rationality specifically, but also just in life yeah. generally. Like, like, even if you don't have rationality, you can at least have people around you that say, hey, you're fucking up. Don't do that. Um, or, hey, we love you. You matter to us. Um, and importantly for the, the meaning thing, you can't have any effect, positive or negative, on anybody else's life if you're shut in right. and aren't interacting with people. Yeah. Like, to matter, you have to interact with other people a lot. Yeah. And because the tech community is overrepresented in the rationalist community, we have a lot of people who work remotely and have no incentive to leave their home. That is one of the contributing factors, I think, to the loneliness epidemic is people have less reason to leave i can and, attest to that mm -hmm. i yeah. i was working from home three days a week for a couple of years before the pandemic and then it's been five days a week at home ever since yeah. and there are entire weeks where i don't see anybody except my wife yeah a couple times a week when the weather's nice like it has been the last few months i you know i'll walk to the store and there's no actually it's self-checkout you know, I don't even talk to a person anymore. Like, but it just gets me out of the house. Like, you know, little things it has really emphasized the value of like just getting out and just being near people yeah. is nice. And, and if you haven't left the house in a month or in two right. weeks to go hang out with people, yeah. I, I suggest you just give it a shot because it's 
refreshing, even if, yes. even when it's exhausting. This, this is why in the Guild of the Rose, we have this skill tree that everyone is working through to you know level up their rationalist skills and just improve their lives more generally. You cannot go in any direction on this tree without hitting a requirement to go talk to pre- talk to people oh, cool. and interact with people in some way. Awesome. Even in the branch that's the empiricist, the one that reads and researches, they are required to do things like talk to other people about what they're researching uh, to prove that you understand it. Yeah. Um, and this is really important. Like the rationalist community does not emphasize this enough. Uh, if I haven't said this before on this podcast, or if someone else hasn't said this yet, the intelligence is not the superpower of humanity. It is our collaboration in light of that intelligence. Mm-hmm. Like with, with intelligence, you can rationalize a lot and then die. And <laughs> you're right. <laughs> you know, you, you might be able to sketch out how a rocket could work, yeah, but yeah. one person can never build one. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. exactly. Um, or you can, you can do a lot to convince yourself of why a certain thing is, is true and you're never, temp- you're never motivated to go test it. Yeah. But so other people who disagree with you can come along and say, actually, no, here's, here's the test and here's why you're wrong and you're rash- you're being a rationalized, rationalizing straw Vulcan. I love that that's included. Even Fight Club had as part of their initiation, go out and pick a fight with a stranger, right? <laughs> <laughs> kind of not the same thing, but similar. You, know. <laughs> we, you had to interact with outside of the club. club. Yeah. There's the it, social component. Yeah. If, if we decided to have a Fight Club uh, skill tree, yeah, they would, that would probably be on it. Awesome. <laughs> I don't really know exactly where to go from here, to be perfectly honest, but I think... One of the biggest pieces of advice I could give is go out and talk to normal people, mm-hmm, <laughs> not mm-hmm. just rationalists. Uh, talk to regular people. Um, go on to meetup.com and find a group that meets in person that is doing or talking about a thing you like. My wife isn't a rationalist by any definition. Mm. We talk about this stuff once in a while, but it's if she encounters something online that brings it up or something, or if I bring up a subject, and it, and, but it's, she hasn't read maybe more than three less wrong posts that I've sent her. Mm-hmm. She's never done the wiki crawl through it. I don't, you know, I've sent her a couple of Scott Alexanders over the years, but I find that so refreshing. Yeah. Hmm. It, it would be exhausting if we were at home having the same kind of these conversations all mm-hmm. the time. And it's look, we have great stimulating conversations because there's, it turns out there's a whole lot of stuff that like we don't talk about that actually is really valuable and interesting. Yeah. Right. There's things besides uh, rationality that are interesting. Wouldn't you know it? Yeah. <laughs> but like, what? And most it, of them have boobs. <laughs> The, You're correct. the the ideas don't necessarily have to have boobs. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. the conversations are great and and they're stimulating and they they change my life. It has nothing to do with like the the top ten things rationalists talk about. Mm-hmm. Other than maybe like near the bottom of where it's currently at of the list of like things rationalists care about is how to be happy, how to live with, how to interact with people in the in, in the best way, how to be a great person with people. Right. Mm. That that's pretty close to the bottom, and it shouldn't be. And I think that you guys are making an effort to, to change that. Yeah. I think that's one of the strengths of the post rationalists and why it they are so attractive to so many people how to live a life where you are happy and fulfilled is like their number one thing as opposed mm-hmm. to near being near the bottom it is the very top item i like that i'll have to give some thought as to whether it would be my number one or not but i guess what i'm saying is like you know my conversations with my wife they're not about ai or effective altruism you know sometimes they are but very you know not not often right yeah. the goal here isn't to solve the meaning of life the goal here is just to talk to people <laughs> and have people around you mm-hmm. like you'll if you do that you'll you'll solve everything else eventually you'll get you'll get your meaning if you sufficiently interact with people yeah. in a sufficiently healthy way 
I need to emphasize, you said don't interact with normal people. And I, you know, I gave the case example of my wife. She's not normal. She's super exceptional, yeah, yeah. but not in the way that rationalists like to think we're exceptional. <laughs> right. right. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. Uh, in terms of both interacting people and a lot of tech workers doing remote work, uh, Stephen, I know you have tr- trouble going out um, often enough, uh, at least in your opinion. Yeah. Okay. Um, when I went to, this was another one of those life-changing events, when I went to the Inc. at the Abbey retreat, we were basically all remote working, right? We were writing. You can write anywhere. Uh, we use the internet a little bit, but... There's uh, a key word there that I think you're going to catch on to. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm okay. really sorry. Uh th- there were the thing is, even though we were all doing remote work on our own out in the middle of nowhere, we were in a giant house all together, and yes. there were sixteen of us. And you know, you would write on your own for a few hours, but you were writing around other people, and yeah. then you would have food together, and then maybe you would like go out and have a fun activity in the evening together, and just mm-hmm. also when when you have a large number of people, even six people, maybe all paying on a mortgage together you can afford a much bigger house in terms of square footage you can get plenty of bedrooms and an office and other stuff when it's split six ways far more than if six individual people try to buy six individual houses Mm. and then you get to see people all the time in your life and interact with them and do meaningful important things for each other yeah that's a good point i I, the word i was gonna say is that you use the word we like 10 times and Mm -hmm. that's what i don't get at home Mm -hmm. yeah is is it is it me not we Mm -hmm. but Again, I, I'm not complaining. I have it good. You know, I like my job, which is not something many people get to say, yeah. you know, and I do work with cool people. I just work with them a thousand miles away. Yeah. I love all the technological innovations we've created. I love the internet. I love remote work. I love our transportation systems that we've created. But the downside of almost every piece of technology is it makes it easier to be isolated. Mm-hmm. That is a problem we really need to contend with. I wish I could say something more useful than just saying we have to contend with this. Uh, but I don't think en- enough people actually even really acknowledge that this is a huge cost and might even be worth pausing before we create new technology sometimes. Like, this is one factor we need to think about when we create new technology. Maybe the cost is worth it sometimes. And I, I think it often is, but it is a cost and we need to factor that into our, uh, Straw Vulcan calculations. <laughs> if we had fully awesome metaverse, you know, that we could all plug into and we, if we wanted to, I think we'd have a similar problem that we have now. Like, because you mentioned isolation. It's not just being home alone. Mm-hmm. You could be isolated with a bunch of other people mm-hmm. and you can do this. Like you mentioned, technology has these pitfalls. I think this happens all the time in online communities. Yep. Oh, yeah. Me and my Twitter friends, we all do this. But it's like you guys all have every box checked in, and they're all the same, right? Yep, yep, yep. You need You need people with other boxes checked to come into your life once in a while. Yeah. You know, this is something that we've said before but hasn't been said in a while is like if, if you think everybody else is evil, you're just wrong. Oh. Yes. Right? Oh, yeah. And if you think, oh, this is why, you know, they just hate, they hate people. And it's like, when you say they, and you're talking about 40% of humans, you're just wrong. They're not full of hate. Yeah. Your community needs to involve people you don't like. You need to be forced to interact with them and and learn how to do that in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. If you're not doing that, you're just in a echo chamber. You're not actually doing the project of community. That yeah. humanity has been doing for the past 200,000 years. This is one of the reason we, reasons that we have tankies on our server. <laughs> tankies? Tankies. Pe- people who believe that there should be a literal communist revolution where we kill people and take their stuff and oh. impose communism. Yeah. Didn't we kick all the people that were advocating for the democide? So if you actually advocate for democide, yes, you will get kicked out. But, okay. but, but there if- are still some people who are like, yeah, 
I think a communist revolution is inevitable and will have to happen someday, but I'm not actually advocating killing anybody right now. <laughs> P.S. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a disclaimer. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, I think that there's definitely, you know, to say that you need discontent or people who don't necessarily vibe with you on every page in your community doesn't mean that you have to tolerate every asshole. Right. I picture, especially online communities, like a house party. Yeah, yeah. You know, enough. and... And I, I had this conversation with people, whereas they they would have like a mod meeting on their Discord, and it wasn't mine to do it to just fix their problem for them. Mm-hmm. But they'd meet once a month, and forty five minutes of the ninety minute meeting would be talking about one person. Mm-hmm. Oh god! And I'm like, it sounds like it sounds like we've identified the problem. It's this person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there there is a solution, and it's right there. It's one click away. Yeah. Again, this and, there's also this is another situation in which you need something more than zero percent moderation and less than a hundred percent moderation. You might say there's a golden mean there. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. And I like that we have next to zero because we do a good job of policing ourselves. Yeah. If someone really doesn't vibe with the community, generally they leave because they get poked and harassed enough. <laughs> Not like harassed, harassed, but it's just it's an unfriendly environment for someone who clashes too much with the values of the server right yeah i would like to if there's any harassment going on knock it the fuck off i don't think we're i think i think it's not that it's just like yeah we're kind of prickly if you're not if you don't have the same kind of prickles that we have yeah, yeah. so and I, I think that's that's appropriate that's fine yeah but we're, we there's we no are like doxing anyone or dming them evil shit yeah good yeah uh there's a great book called bowling alone Ah, uh, yes. That talks about the early days of when it was, fr- when the loneliness epidemic was first being discovered. One of the contributing factors is we can now choose our communities. One of the key contributors of the loneliness epidemic, or the meaning crisis more generally, is we can now choose our community, which is great in so many ways, except for the fact it kind of sucks. It's so, great, except it sucks. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, so back in the day, like there, there were old churches on the side of which you have a bread measurer to measure the size of the loaf of bread that you bought from the market to make sure it was up to standard. Huh. That is a testament to how tightly knit communities used to be. These days, if you go to a grocery store and you have an interaction with a cashier, you will probably never see that cashier again in your life. Mm. Well, there's a very good chance you'll never see them again, especially if you drive out 20 miles. And with the advent of cars, we can now go to our barbershop 15 minutes away one direction. We go to our church 10 minutes away in another direction. Mm-hmm. We're all inhabiting the same geographic space, but we're living in completely different communities. Mm-hmm. Anytime a community or a social group gets too hard, we just leave that group and go somewhere else. Or whenever we don't like the way a particular business is doing things, we just leave and go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Which, again, there's a lot of upsides to that. But it, it has allowed us to fall prey to a lot of our basest tribalistic instincts and also makes it very easy to not do hard work, uh, which is kind of needed for a meaning-filled life, like yeah. Wes implies with his kids. Although Wes would take issue with that, he would say that he has never worked a day with his kid. Oh, okay. That's fair enough. <laughs> Probably. He doesn't call it work. It, it, yeah, he just calls it having a wonderful time with his kid. That's great. That's good framing. The, the whole idea here is that I think a lot of rationalist types discount the need for narratives and for community at their peril. And then I think there are a lot of post-rat Jordan Peterson types that overhype the need for meaning and community to a pathological extent. And they don't, they, they lack the corrective mechanisms that rash, things like rationality can provide. I don't know where the happy medium here is exactly. I don't know how to identify it or quantify it for you. 
But I, I think the answer is just other people being around. I think community is just really important. And if you can raise the sanity waterline a little bit for yourself, like embody the ideals of rationality and then go out and find other people, I think that's a really good start. That was beautiful. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well put. That sounded that sounded like you were reading from a script, but I assure you guys, it wasn't. I, 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 I don't have anything in my in my hands. Nothing up my sleeve. Nothing up my sleeve. He's just that articulate. My uh, my wish. I, I whenever I listen to uh, Sam Harris and actually mm. even Ariel, I wish I could be half as articulate as Ariel is. Um, I love the way she was able to respond to your questions, even if I disagreed with a lot of what she said. I liked the way she was able to formulate her ideas in a very methodical way. She really stumbled over her words, and I do that all the time. <laughs> oh, you will do that less in this episode because of the magic of post. Oh, thank you. Yes. Great. I'm going to sound even better. I spend a fair number of hours on episodes nowadays. Great. Looking forward to that. Well, that's good, except for I feel like my constant inability to sound coherent might be like make you're missing on the opportunity to make people feel better about themselves you know by by seeing how low the bar is you know <laughs> well i mean sometimes it can be hard when you're like um adding you knows in the middle of a word <laughs> i can like i can't cut out that you know, I, know. <laughs> I, I see that and I, when i edit stuff i see the same thing and i one thing i try to do to make it easier to listen and to edit is i try to talk slower sometimes you get excited that takes some bandwidth yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I told myself right before this episode, okay, I'm going to talk slowly, I'm going to talk low, but uh, the moment I get excited, it, uh, it, yeah. I, it all goes out the window. I yeah. think that's okay. Yeah. Enthusiasm is important. Enthusiasm is infectious. Yeah. Which is good. I just think there's a couple of different pathologies that I just wish people would pay more attention to. And every community has their own particular pathologies. I think Ario was correct in, in pointing out the pathology of the straw Vulcan tendencies in the rationalist community. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a, a pathology of having such an open mind that your brain falls out mm -hmm. uh, in the post-rat type spheres. High five for the second Carl Sagan quote that you've given this episode. The first one was The Invisible Dragon. Yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I love Carl Sagan. Me too. Have you guys read Demon Haunted World? I have. It's been a long time. Good. That's a good book. I recommend that to the readers. Yep. I wish I could come here and bring something more actionable. This podcast is not necessarily about actionable stuff. There was actionable advice, which is, you know, if anyone, if you have the means to go socialize and you're like, uh, it sounds like work, I don't want to. It's like, just... Just try it. And yes, sometimes not everyone is a home run. We must imagine Sisyphus as having a house party on that hill. <laughs> there you go. I think there will be a certain type of person who listens to this podcast and thinks something to the effect of, oh, well, I think people are more trouble than they're worth. Or, you know, I've tried to do this before, but it always ends terribly. And I'm just going to come out and say, I think you're doing it wrong. You're making your life worse and you are not winning and you will be miserable uh, and at the very least, the world will not benefit from the magic that I know you have. Do you think Sisyphus would have been happier with multiple people there? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. When when put that way, the the case make the case kind of settles itself, you know. Looking up a local meetup, if you have a rationalist meetup, less wrong or ACX meetup or anything like that, great thing to go to. If you are really extremely uncomfortable being social, we've had someone who for almost a year has just come and sit and observed and listened to other people and not really said much of anything himself. Mm -hmm. And he's starting to open up now and talk just a little bit more. And yeah. that's kind of cool. But like, if all you do is go there and hang out with other people and see how they interact and pick up on the social norms or something mm -hmm. for months, if that's what it takes, that's fine too. At least you're getting to be around people. Yeah. And if the group that you go to, if they try to give you any shit about it, tell them we'll fight them IRL. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean... You can call any one of us up. Yep. Mm -hmm. I will, I will drive out there and tell them to 
to knock it off. Everyone needs to be met where they're at. And, yeah. you know, someone who wants to sit there and just kind of hang out, like, you're not bothering anybody. Go yeah. nuts. Different people have different roles in a community, and different people have different strengths and weaknesses in that community. Mm-hmm. Just engage with a community somehow. That's one of the biggest life hacks I could give anyone, including past Alex, who went and asked for the best rationalist techniques that I could start practicing in my daily life. If I could give him any advice, it would be go touch grass with other people. Mm. <laughs> go, go interact with people, normal yeah. people that yeah. are not rationalists. If you have to start with a rationalist meetup, do that. Just engage with people somehow. A mix of both. I mean, because normal people makes it sound like we think we're not normal, and you know we're <laughs> yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 that's a that's a that's a bad. No, word. no. It's it's the best it's the best word for it. You know, it's the best shorthand for it. But I just to make you know, it's not. It, there's no superiority involved or in, yeah. in, implied. It's just we're you know we're weird. Yeah. So, but no, I did not use the word normie. Right. <laughs> yes, that sounds pejorative. But yeah. like this, is one of the things about working from home is like like I used to go to an office every day. Mm-hmm. And the commute was a, was a bit of a slog, and not every minute there was fun because you can, you know there's a lot of downsides to working in a public space. Mm-hmm. But man, there's a lot of fun there too, and none of that happens when you're alone at your own computer. I will uh, say, just telling people to go out and talk with others hard to be actionable because, mm-hmm. like you said, when you go into an office, there's some socialization implied in there. You're going to meet your coworkers and talk with them no matter what. Mm-hmm. A lot of society is set up to discourage people from interacting with others. Like, mm-hmm. you're not supposed to have a conversation with your cashier. Mm-hmm. If you're at a coffee shop, drinking a coffee, working on something, you're not supposed to turn to the person sitting next to you and strike up a conversation with them. I don't like that either. I, I, I think it's a shitty thing about society, but it you are definitely feels like you're transgressing like even if you're sitting on a bus mm-hmm. if someone's sitting next to you you're not about allowed to say like hey where are you headed you know what you're planning to do today yeah uh, maybe if you see them reading you can ask them hey what are you reading but i think headphones are the universal don't talk to me sa- uh, signal and if they're not wearing headphones you maybe i think it's, okay. it's i think it's okay to try to engage and if they turn it down you just accept it absolutely but yeah, yeah but, I, it, but it's still it's still a bit of an act of courage because it's slightly frowned upon by society. Yeah. This is this is probably less courageous, but ha- but it is also an effort that you can do if you work if you're fully remote. You can still invite your coworkers to lunch, especially if they're remote too. You can you can do remote lunch. You can do a recurring me- meeting for half an hour on Thursdays. Be like anyone who wants to come in the company or you know in my group of on my team or whatever. We're gonna just hang out and talk for half yeah. an hour, shoot the shit. Or you can invite your friends over for lunch. Mm-hmm. In in meat space, yeah, friends? meat space, yeah. yeah. Say, hey, come over to my house at seven o'clock, or, 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 or if you have a normal hours like me, like like <laughs> not like me, you come over at like one o'clock, and mm-hmm. we'll I'll, I'll, we'll eat some sandwiches and chat. We have lunch at seven. Do you mean seven a.m. or p.m.? Uh, I take my lunch at seven p.m. because I work evenings. Oh dang! Yeah, because I work remotely, I frequently just invite friends over to my house, and they are just existing with me in my house while I'm on the laptop. Oh. And they will either chat if if there's, if there's multiple of them, they'll chat among themselves, or we'll uh, we'll occasionally hang out and we'll eat food or drinks, or they'll play on my Oculus, and we just exist together. Neat. That That's adds it. a lot. It's yeah. funny. In the reason I sighed was because I'm forty minutes from the closest, like my closest friend, mm. right? Mm. And I'm actually forty minutes, basically equidistant from all of my Denver friends, and they're all forty oh, minutes, forty no. to fifty minutes away. That's but, it's not great, man. You know it. <laughs> It's kind of just the name of the beast. It's a yeah. big city, and I chose to live on the other side of it. But did I say the name of the beast? I meant the nature of it. But <laughs> the it, you mentioned having people around. I had a coworker who was staying at a hotel 10 minutes from my house for two nights, and he came over to work at my house both of those days. Yeah. 
we walked down the street to a Starbucks to grab sandwiches for lunch, and yeah. then we had lunch together. And then he's working over on the table, and I'm working in my office. Wasn't I'm like, so great. and it was just like, hey, what do you think about this? And he could just come in and look. Yeah. And it was like that was actually, and it sounds small, but it was like actually no, really cool. That's, that's that's one of the biggest things, yeah. man. Mm-hmm. Interaction with other people. That's one of the best things in life. Yeah, there's very little feedback when you just post it to like a group chat or even a DM, like in a works communication platform and be like, what do you guys think of this? And then just wait. That's so different than just <laughs> having someone come over to your desk or going over to look at their computer, yeah. you know? Yeah. I have an old coworker who used to pay, they lived in San Diego, I think they still do, paid some dollars a month to go to a public workspace. I'm assuming there's norms there that make it not um, rude to talk to a stranger. It was just, just to also not to have your work at home, which is nice. But the other thing was just like to like physically go to work is, is nice separation. But yeah. to have people around you when you work is cool, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You, you talk about riding at coffee shops just because it's not at home. Yeah. You know, and, and there's, there's some hustle and bustle around you. Yeah. yeah. There's this irrational belief I hold that if, if only I bring a book and I don't wear headphones to a bar or a coffee shop... Someone will turn to me and ask what I'm reading. Hmm. And I'm like, please, ask me what I'm reading. I want to talk to everyone about what I'm reading. Hmm. I've complained about this before. But the other day, someone did it. And it made my day. Yay. And it was the one of the best experiences I've ever had That's at, at, a, at a coffee shop. Nice. Um, like having someone genuinely interested in a book I'm reading is really cool. You could get your own dust jacket and just... Write on it. Ask what I'm reading on it. <laughs> and then, then I, that I way, use an e-reader. Then even easier. Put a sticker on the back. There you go. That's true. And just that. ask me what I'm reading. And then that way, if anyone is the least bit inclined, they'll know it's okay to ask. I usually read it flat on the f- surface, but I could like uh, maybe get a table sign. <laughs> get like a table sign. Say here. Ask me what I'm reading. It feels a little contrived, but there's there's some way to make this happen. Yeah, I'm sure. Just just to, just to let people know that the invitation's open. Yeah. Which is which you know. Uh, I wish I lived in a society in which it was implied that the invitation was open, you know? Yeah. Like, and then you could wear headphones or something to opt out. Alex, you've started a community. You, you've, you've helped found a community of the world isn't the way I want it. I'm going to change that. <laughs> Be the change for this you want yes. to. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I guess the, the, the change starts by actually creating the culture and then you can reach a critical mass to right. where you don't need the opt-in anymore. Well, speaking of making actual actionable changes in the world yeah. and creating a community for doing this, yeah. what is this community you have created that makes actionable changes <laughs> in the world and lets you change your life? A plus segue. <laughs> Fantastic <laughs> segue, for sure. A while back, when I first got involved in the rationalist community, I was really disillusioned by the fact that nobody was really doing anything to teach rationality or to organize rationalists in any, any significant way. CIFAR was the closest thing, but number one, they were physically located in the Bay Area. Right. Already a huge barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. Number two, they were charging thousands of dollars to mm-hmm. attend. Yeah. You could apply for scholarships to make it only a couple thousand dollars or something. And uh, I think they may have changed their format at some point. But whether it was a few days or a few weeks, that's still a very short amount of time to be imparted the methods of rationality. Right. <laughs> so I read the sequences over the course of three months and mm-hmm. spent the next eight months to a year digesting that. Mm -hmm. And then it took me another two years before I even considered myself a meaningful part of the community in any way, in any reasonable way. And that was, that was with constant interactions with like your discord server or listening to your podcast, Mm -hmm. which by the way, was a huge comfort to me in my days as a baby rationalist. So thank you for that. Hey, no problem for, for what it's worth. Putting out a podcast is like screaming into the void. 
you no. never hear anything back. You don't know if anyone is getting anything <laughs> out of it. So thank you for letting me know. Yes, yes. My heart swelled with meaning when he said that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I say, that, I say that somewhat jokingly, but also seriously. Great. Mm. Happy to help. So I had all this frustration with the community and said, skip to the pandemic. And I said, okay, David Yusuf, you've gone on to this podcast before expressing similar frustrations with the community. You want to start a rationalist dojo? And he's like, hell yeah. We brought in Matt, Matt Freeman and uh, our friend Errol and Gray, and we all built a, this thing that we now call the Guild of the Rose. It is our attempt to take the idea of systemized winning and actually systemize it. We are frustrated with all the various self-help techniques out there, including the rationalist canon of self-help techniques, in that you don't know where to start. Mm -hmm. You can pick a tool, and you don't know how to use the tool, or when to use the tool, or in what order to use the various tools, and what sequence. And so we decided we would create a community of people who are interested in this problem, and start teaching all the things we know about rationality, and see what we come up with. We eventually created a skill tree that kind of represents all the various rationality tools that we've discovered. We've laid them out in some semblance of a sequence with the simpler uh, skills at the near the center of the tree and all the more advanced stuff um, as you go further out on the edges. All that to say, the Guild of the Rose is my way of trying to raise the sanity waterline. I want this organization to be a place where rationalists can come to learn more about rationality, but also just people who want to improve their lives, because the methods of rationality have improved my life in so many ways, so many tangible ways. It made me happier as a person, and I want that the Guild of the Rose to be that beacon of light of rationality to the rest of the world. It uh, consists of weekly workshops on a variety of topics, kind of in a lecture style. We usually have some kind of activity to practice the material. We also have these cohorts of a very small handful of people get together and they basically become their own little fraternity within the guild and they can seek advice from each other and help each other out and talk. And then you have the broader community that is all aligned on the same path of recursive and iterative self-improvement on the path to systemized winning and whatever your goals happen to be. Mm -hmm. So that was a very long-winded explanation of what we are, but I, it's kind of difficult to articulate what it is properly without knowing all the various moving parts of it. Basically, if you want an elevator pitch, it is an organization that is trying to uh, help people improve their lives in measurable, meaningful ways. And the bumper sticker is Rationalist Dojo. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To join that, you can go to theguildofthe-rose.org or you can click on the link that is in the show notes of this episode because we are partnered with you guys. We love what you're doing and uh, we are helping people know about this every week. Hopefully. Yes, I love that we've partnered with the Bayesian Conspiracy podcast. It has, I can't tell you how many people joined the Guild of the Rose saying, okay, we heard about, I heard about, I keep hearing about you on the Bayesian Conspiracy. Oh, really? Um, and I, I keep putting it off, but then they finally, I find, since they keep doing it, yeah. I hear about it every week or every, every podcast podcast episode i broke down and finally decided to join holy shit so we had an effect you had an effect you are <laughs> right. you are constantly having an effect okay so, I, 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 I kept meaning to ask you and kept forgetting like 
Yeah. It, does this actually have any results? Yeah. That's what I was going to... I just occurred to me. I was like, you know, it hadn't even occurred to me to ask if this was working yet. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really glad yes. to hear it. Honestly, yes. it's working on me. Every time we give the pitch, I get more and more. And like, I just get off my ass and do this. <laughs> so I, 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 I am a paid supporter. So I get. I, I don't think I, anything is actually paywalled on the site. But mm. I do look at some of the stuff. But I should be more involved participating in stuff. Now, yeah. that, now that I'm getting over my allergy of Discord again, I think it'd be easier for me. <laughs> That's great to hear. We want it to be as accessible as possible. So... We try to keep the barrier to entry as low as possible, and the like the the, the, the cost aspect as low as possible. Yeah. Uh, I think currently you can join a cohort and engage with our workshops for completely free. The only time you ever have to spend money is if you want to uh, level up uh, a certain past a certain point on the skill tree. Mm-hmm. So you can actually start making progress in your life without putting any money down of any kind. Nice. And yeah, when you could, we you could try it before you buy it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And when we. Uh, inevitably change our pricing model yet again, which we've done many times, mm-hmm. we will always have the opportun- option for if someone truly can't afford it, that they can just email us saying, hey, we can't, I, I can't afford this. Can I join? We will always say yes to that. That will always be a, a feature. I think that's great. And I, I, the first time I think I encountered that was Sam Harris's meditation app. That's where I got the inspiration from. And, and it's like, he, he's like, look, I need, he doesn't put it this way because he's more eloquent, but it's like, I need to make money. I have bills. Mm-hmm. And like, I worked hard on this, but I think it's important enough to give away if you can't afford it. Yes. You know, I think that's the right way to do a lot of stuff. Yes. Well, usually when we have guests on, especially like people we don't know, I like to ask, like, you know, is there anything we didn't hit that you meant to or whatever? Mm-hmm. And there's any question I'm, I'm, tr- I'm going to try and work in with these is like, if people have one takeaway from this, mm. what would you want it to be? Other people are important, man. Yeah, it's a mm. good one. I, mean, I like it. More important than you think, specifically. Nice. Well put. Last, last thing before we sign off is give a special shout out to Joshua Reed. We were talking about financial support and how much it's appreciated and, you know, it's, it means a lot. And uh, you're our hero this, this uh, I like to say week, even though it's not. Yeah. Fortnite sounds different, but th- this, this bi-week episode. Thank you. It really does mean a lot. It makes a huge difference. And, you're a badass. Uh, yeah. It's very hard to get feedback on podcasts. You don't know if what you're doing makes a difference at all to anybody. But the fact that someone thinks it is impactful enough in their life to give a buck or two per episode, it means a lot. It means that it does have some impact. And um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. As one wise man once said, money is the unit of caring. Yeah. <laughs> I do that once in a while with like uh, YouTube channels that I like or something. Even if I don't plan to do it forever, it's like... You know, I'd like to be like, I've really enjoyed your content. You know, like send them send, send them something that would just take me time to think of how to write, take them time to read. Like, you know, forget it. I'll just give you guys 20 bucks over the next year. And then, you know, it's it's like, it's my way of, of not spending the time to write a note and not spending your time to read it. All right. Well, on that very strong note, uh, I think we should call it. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Thank man. you, guys. It's always a pleasure chatting with you guys. Hell yeah. Likewise. Steven, welcome back. It's been a few days and we're ready for the second half of the show. Second part. Half sounds like half. That makes it fun for me. Yeah, half doesn't mean fifty percent. Yeah, all, all this, all this talk on words, you know. <laughs> the vibes of half is what I'm going for. Right. Okay. The accuracy doesn't matter too much. That works. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's it's somewhere in that adjacent part of things space. Yeah. So. Oh, nice tie to what we're going to be talking about soon. Yeah, that was might have almost been on purpose. Uh, do you want to quickly hit the one uh, listener feedback that was not related to the post red stuff? Yeah, let's do it. Jayton said that it bothered me a bit in this episode that Inyash summarizes the socialist calculation problem by noting that the economy is too complex to be centrally planned. This is a common misunderstanding. If the crux of the problem were complexity, then it might be true that central planning could successfully outperform the market economy at some threshold of additional computer power or smarter AI. 
Socialist calculation is fundamentally inefficient, not because the economy is too complex to be computationally modeled, but because the data required for such calculation is diffuse and inscrutable, being located only in the minds of millions of individuals. Right on. I, I'm kind of torn because I think that's kind of what too complex means. I think what Jayton, Jayton is saying is that this thing, in this case, the economy, isn't too complicated, but the data c- to compute it is. When I said too complicated, I kind of meant like what you're thinking too, that there's just, you cannot calculate all of this. I think what he's saying is that like some things in theory can be extremely difficult to compute, but might be possible to compute if you had enough compute to do it. Whereas this is literally impossible to compute no matter how much compute you have, because the data does not exist in any format that uh, you can get to. It's just people's preferences and desires and and opinions inside their heads. In practice, it's the same thing. You can't model the economy that way. Uh, yeah. But it, he's saying that, the, or they're saying that the, the issue is on the, the side of the data, not on the side of the ability to, like, in theory, c- calculate this. Yeah, yeah. That's clearly coming from a place of understanding that I don't have. So to me, it sounds like they're saying the same thing. I mean, I, I'm getting, I'm hearing the difference, but like, that's not, that's not a uh, nitpick I would have been able to pick up on. Or like, without help. So thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, th- I, I do want to say massive thanks for that. Because I had like, a vague sense of that, but I hadn't put it into words. And I am glad that he could because it is much stronger to say, you know, this is literally impossible and really kind of a stupid fool's errand to try. You, you can't, you just can't get access to that data if, if you do try to plan things like that. So uh, GL, HF. Good luck. Uh have fun. Have fun. Gotcha. Yeah. Let's go on to the less wrong post that you were alluding to. Sounds good. Before we do that, actually, I wanted to mention one thing. So um, during our episode with Alex a few days ago, uh, I had given each you know a high five for different ways that you've inspired me and been awesome. The one I gave for Alex actually wasn't the first thing that came to my mind, but I didn't want to just dive into it for reasons that might become apparent here in a second. Alex was the one when I posted... A couple years ago when my friend was sick with uh, brain cancer, man, people call me nice sometimes and Alex inspires me to be a better person. He rallied like all the people who seemed interested. He, he put together a, a Google folder, a Google Drive folder, uh, sent that link to everybody, helped put together all of the documents and links and everything that everyone had. Like, and I don't even have to ask him to. Docu- wait, documents and links to what? Like um, various studies or analysis. Does this apparatus help with anything or whatever? Um, okay. We posted like, you know, scans of his MRI and stuff like that in there, uh, mm-hmm. grabbed the reins and said, all right, let's actually make an effort out of this. And I, I didn't have the will to do that at the time. And uh, he did. It was great. So I that is awesome. Yeah, he's he's an outstanding person. If I was underselling it during the episode, then make sure you're getting the accurate price of it now. Thank you, Alex. You are amazing and a great human being and a great rationalist. Well put. All right. Now on to the less wrong posts. Yes. Typicality and asymmetrical similarity. Starts out by saying birds fly. Well, except ostriches don't. Which is a more typical bird, a robin or an ostrich? I like this. And he he did dive into exactly where my first thoughts were going, which is this depends where you grow up. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, not just where you grow up. Like, if I had grown up just just around penguins, that was my primary bird. First of all, I I would have had a great childhood. And second of all, if the first time I saw a swallow, I'd be very confused. Not, not, I don't know. It depends on how well my eyes educated. But to me, my central example would be, you know, these fat things that swim and can't fly. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, I, I wouldn't think of, of whatever birds as birds. 
But you wouldn't have a category for birds because if you grew up around penguins, you grew up in Antarctica and there wouldn't be any birds, right? Or are there birds down there? Ah, uh, there's penguins. Well, right. But <laughs> you would just have penguins. And since there's no other birds to fall into a group with them, you wouldn't need a category of bird. Maybe I grew up in a zoo with ostriches and penguins. <laughs> but those animals are so different that they, they don't meaningfully belong next to each other in my brain, do they? No. But I, I guess, you know, what he was drawing at was just the, it was the, you know, you've got central examples of things. He, he talked about how, for example, if you ask subjects to press a button to indicate true or false in response to statements like a robin is a bird or a penguin is a bird, reaction times are faster for more central examples. And then parenthetically, mm -hmm. I'm still unpacking my books, but I'm re reasonably sure my source on this is Lakoff, 1986. Yeah. And I just had to mention, it seems like he's never not packing or unpacking books. <laughs> well, these these posts were all written in a matter of days. The fact that it takes us two weeks to go through what he went through in five days makes a big difference here. Totally. And I'm sure he has a lot of books. Yes, that too. Ooh, I wonder how many books he does have. You know, I, I have moved between places and then like never taken books out of boxes. And those are the ones I just give away. Yeah. It's like, all right, if I didn't need these for three years, I just don't need them, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I've tossed out boxes basically unopened before just because after I've moved twice with the same box and not opening it, I'm like, I obviously don't need whatever's in here. Man, if you had opened it, it could have been like the one thing you've been looking for, you know? <laughs> I think I did peek in. <laughs> good, good. That just seems prudent. <laughs> yeah. All right, which, which of these is a more natural statement, Inyash? 98 is approximately 100 or 100 is approximately 98? Definitely the first one. I feel that way too. I think I can explain why I feel that way. Okay, why? If it, if you'd ask me which is closer, you know, uh, 68 or 70, or 70 or 68, I'd say the same, right? Mm -hmm. But 100 is like a certainty. I think of it in terms of percentages. Oh, okay. See, I think of it in terms of I'm constantly, when I'm doing math in my head, um, doing quick shortcuts like making something 100 and then doing the math to it when the numbers are easier and then subtracting two to my answer, uh, from my answer at the very end. Oh, yeah, that would work too. Yeah, so uh, it, it, based on how many times I've said, okay, this number is basically this number, and I'll remember to subtract the difference at the end, it falls into that same pattern, where I would never, ever make it harder to do the math <laughs> by thinking, oh, yeah, 100 is basically 98, so I'm going to do the math to 98 instead. Right, let's do 98 plus 47 instead of 100 plus 47. Um, yeah, I, I, or 100 plus 45. Right. To me, 98 and 100 are different kinds of categories, but that's that specific example. With the Robin and you know uh, Penguin thing, it, that still flies. Mm-hmm. You see what I did there? Oh. Oh, no. no. Why? Now the tomatoes are going to fly <laughs> directly at your head. Try and find me. <laughs> I know where you live. Shoot. All right. Let's keep, let's keep trucking. So people, interestingly, people were more likely to expect a disease would spread from robins to ducks on an island than from ducks to robins. This is where, like, this is actually a problem. Yeah. It, it's all fine and dandy if people are, you know... Oh, and there's other funny case of people thinking that Mexico is more like the United States than the United States is like Mexico. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can also see that being the case, like in a way that isn't just not isn't just rationalization where it's. Oh, like, because, yeah, if, America has the, the Western culture that is permeating everything. Well, I'll, I'll take your answer. It's better. OK, <laughs> yeah. the world copies Neat. us. Yes. We set trends. Yeah. We make up we make up memes and movies. We are we are the cool kids. Half the time. Half the time well, it works every time. Did Mexico make a movie with that line? No, they did not. Maybe they have sense. Uh, well, see, then they're copying us again. Great example was they did a not just a like a cheap ripoff, but they did a a full series of Breaking Bad. Oh, neat! With you know, and it wasn't just it wasn't dubbed; it was all new actors, but it was the exact same show, same everything. Um, huh. And 
you know, that's just because it was good enough that they're like, we, we want one of these too. Yeah. Like the US does this a lot with um, uh, Japanese movies and shows. And they do it with some British stuff too. Like The Office was originally a uh, show in England. Right. Yeah. And apparently we're making some Squid Games movie or show. Mm. Which sounds like a dumb idea. I think so too. I, <laughs> like the show was, I think this is my, my hot take for this. I think that show was overhyped. It was fine. Mm-hmm. It wasn't mm-hmm. even the best game that kills you show that came out of that part of the world that year. <laughs> right. So uh, I'm not looking forward to season two, but we'll see how it does. Uh, but this this thing where people expect for the disease to travel from the central example to outlier examples more readily than the reverse. Interesting thing. I, I can see how that could uh, fuck things up in your world model. Yeah. He basically ends this by saying, look, this is another reason not to pretend that you or anyone else is really going to treat words as Aristotelian logical classes. Nobody is going to say when you present them with the plucked chicken, yeah, that's a human. <laughs> this is the same kind of thing. People don't use words that way, and it's really stupid to pretend that they do. Uh, kind of a manipulative dark arts sort of thing if you try it. I think people sometimes do try it, even today, which is interesting. Oh, are you kidding me? This is one of the main things that happens nowadays during the culture wars. Yeah, I uh, under, underneath my blissful rock, I can only hear echoes of the culture wars. So, Thank uh, God. But I do know, exactly, are... I think I know the kinds of things you're talking about, and... Uh, yeah, it's it's true. But I also love how just in these, you know, he can't finish one of these posts in the sequence that just throwing a tomato at Aristotle. <laughs> I mean, they were working with nothing. They had to invent it from the ground up. They did pretty good oh. considering, as you brought up last time, that, you know, everything hurts all the time and <laughs> nobody knows why lightning. Yeah, I mean, they're starting from scratch. They did pretty good. Yeah. But just to pretend like we haven't made progress in the last two and a half, cent- two and a half millennia is uh, an insult to progress. And Exactly. Us. Yes, we're better than that. All right. Well, we've got uh, the next post coming up is the the cluster structure of thing space. Starts out with saying, it may seem like blue is closer to blue green than to red, but how much closer? Hmm? Yeah. In the same way that you can see a robin as a robin, brown tail, red breast, standard robin shape, maximum flying speed when unladen, it's Hmm. species typical DNA and individual alleles and obligatory African or European I was going to say swallow, but Robin in this case. He makes this point to go on to say that you could see a Robin as a single point in configuration space whose dimensions describe everything we knew or could know about the Robin. Volume and mass, the shape of the Robin, its color, you can likewise think of as part of the Robin's position in thing space, even though they aren't single dimensions. Like a graph, an XY graph can tell you where the uh, where an object is located. Uh, this is the same kind of thing like on a graph of colors the point will tell you where the color is uh and you can do that for basically everything uh about the physical characteristics of a robin and and the color is a good example too because you know even on like just basic color selectors you've got the Mm -hmm. the circle you know the circle that encompasses the colors right Mm -hmm. and they all blend and they all meet in the middle at black but then there's this kind of third dimension of transparency with like this slider right yeah and they, they just put the slider going left and right at the bottom instead of like having you move forward and backwards on the color because it's way easier on a screen to do it that way right yes i think this post is brilliant yeah it sets it up with with like a simple example and then adds in like the extra steps that you need to kind of just get this almost literally galaxy brained model of how to think about things relating to each other yeah you can think of them all as just a configuration space with many dimensions for every distinct characteristic of an object so that a position of an object's point in this space corresponds to all the information about that object yeah 
And importantly, if we're not sure of Irapan's exact mass and volume, we can think of it as a little cloud in thing space, a volume of uncertainty within which the Robin might be. Right, somewhere between virus and aircraft carrier. Yes, <laughs> and honestly, probably much more constricted than that. Maybe golf ball and bowling ball and put Robin somewhere in the middle of those, right? Sounds very reasonable. He goes on to expand this idea into less concrete objects and more concepts. He says, think of mother. The central mother conceives her child, gives birth to it, and supports it. Is an egg donor who never sees her child a mother? She is the genetic mother. What about a woman who is implanted with a foreign embryo and bears it to term? She is a surrogate mother. And the woman who raises a child that isn't hers genetically? Why, she's an adoptive mother. Yondu put it succinctly in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 when he said, he may be your father, boy, but he ain't your daddy. <laughs> I, I don't think that would make sense if you haven't actually seen the movie. No, but everyone who's listening to this is cool and has, so. Good point. We don't allow lame people to listen to our podcast. <laughs> if you're lame, we got to turn this off right now. Not try to push us into culture war stuff, but like, isn't every confusing thing that people argue about with terms just like, couldn't that one bullet point about the central mother example, like, solve all of these complications if people were just willing to put their pitchforks down? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Just just checking. I thought so, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's pointing out that, you know, some things can have certain characteristics, but not be a central example. And we generally have different terms for those things. Right. To uh, help differentiate them. As we all know, humans have ten, 10 fingers, except for Fred, who has nine. So he's not a human. Yes. But he says the way we actually think about it is humans have 10 fingers. Fred is a human. Therefore, Fred is a nine fingered human. Oh, God. My Aristotelian syllogism. What do I do? No. <laughs> you must abandon all logic now and become a, become a woo practitioner. Shoot. Fred proved you wrong. There is no such thing as certainty in the world. There's no such thing as a perfect definition. Maybe I can live with that. Definitions are supposed to point at clusters in thing space as opposed to perfectly outline something in all its details. Exactly. Penguins are kind of birds. Right. He says, if we thought about the intention of the word mother, it might be like a distributed glow in thing space, a glow whose intensity matches the degree to which that volume of thing space matches the category mother. Then suppose we mapped all the birds in the world into thing space. A robin is more similar to another robin than either similar to a pigeon, but robins and pigeons are more similar to each other than either is to a penguin. Then the center of all birdness would be densely populated by many neighboring tight clusters, robins and sparrows and canaries and pigeons and many other species. Eagles and falcons and other large predatory birds would occupy a nearby cluster. Penguins would be in a more distant cluster and likewise chickens and ostriches. The results might look indeed something like an astronomical cluster. Many galaxies orbiting the center and a few outliers. I like that. And he says, I prefer that last visualization, the glowing points, because as I see it, the structure of cognitive intention follows from the extens extensional cluster structure. First came the structure in the world, the empirical distribution of birds over thing space. Then, by observing it, we formed a category whose intentional glow roughly overlays the structure. Yeah. I like that a lot. And then I can kind of picture things, you know, like chairs and tables and desks and whatever. And like, is a beanbag a chair? Well, you sit in it. That's about all they have in common, you know? Yeah. I could picture them as closer to each other in thing space rather than like a hammer and a, and a desk chair. Absolutely. I also love this way of looking at it because it points out that there is a structure to the world. Our minds are trying to map it. The closer we can cluster things in our mind to how they are kind of clustered in the world, the more useful our map will be. 
This is not like random arbitrary. We have decided to define a human as such. And therefore that is what a human is. It is more like we have seen a whole bunch of these things in the real world and they seem very similar on these dimensions we care about. So we identify that cluster of similarity in the real world by using the same word for it in our minds. Yeah, because it works enough of the time to be valuable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if it, you know, it person is, I want to say nat- is an unnatural category as opposed to natural, but I don't actually know if that makes any difference or actually is a real thing. I mean, there's a lot of controversy as to whether fetuses are persons, whether animals are persons, whether an AI in the near future will be a person. Yeah, because it, that that's a concept that we made up, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas like humans are things that you can point at. I think you can identify things that have agency in the world. Oh, so it depends on how you define person. No, I, I see what you're saying. Yes, yeah, so, I mean agency. I don't know. Yeah, that's. I mean, let's look at us into too far afield. But I don't know if that's required. When I think person, I think um, include this in my sphere of moral consideration. Okay, I see. Yeah, or at least near near the top of my or near the center of my sphere of moral consideration. I do think we have something, some something we probably owe to like the dumbest animals who aren't anywhere near the middle and probably more than zero things that we owe to things like a piece of art or something. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So person, but again, so person's a very squishy, very, uh, this where like philosophers, you know, they need to do that thing where it's like, all right, let me define my terms very, very carefully. Cause otherwise we're going to just talk right past each other. Cause you know, I'm thinking person as far as like moral consideration weight and, and you're thinking of it in terms of like makes decisions that it wants to do. Um, yeah, I would I would not necessarily tie persons to moral consideration. See, I think it's because I this is the typicality thing, right? I think I first came across it reading Peter Singer. If you came across it thinking, you know, reading AI literature, then it's like we're, we're coming at it from different <laughs> angles, right? I'm pretty sure both of us knew the word person and roughly what it meant to us long before we came across it, those sorts of literatures. Shoot, that's a good point. I think when I was younger, I probably just equated it with human being. Yeah. I think that is why people try to hijack the word person, because they know that people equate it with human beings and people have a lot of uh, ideas about how you can treat human beings and how you should treat human beings. That's why I always thought it was funny you mentioned like fetuses being people. This was always a dumb move. I remember in the pro-choice side of the debate was like, you know, oh, they're not human. It's like, of course they are. Yeah, they have two human parents. Like, Mm -hmm. what else would they be? Um, (laughs) Yeah. The question isn't whether or not the human. The question is whether or not like. It does it have moral weight? For me, the question would be: Is it a person? Interesting. Does that do, do if, persons have moral weight? Uh, if it's not a person, it has almost no moral weight generally. Uh, it it can have some. Yeah. Okay. But I, so I think we're kind of talking about the same thing there. Then moral weight is a tricky thing for me because we can talk about morality for hours, and we should not. So because otherwise, we'll get distracted. Good point. In that case. Uh, a natural cluster, you know, a group of things highly similar to each other may have no set of necessary sufficient properties, no set of characteristics that all group members have and no non-members have. Yeah. I can't think of anything that I could define that says this, everything in this group has all the characteristics and no non-members have this, have any of these characteristics. Like, Oh, there's definitely some things you could like matter. Uh, I mean, I suppose, I mean, well, you get enough energy together. You can, you can bend space time like matter. The way I think of matter is it is something with mass. Well, I mean, if you if you think of mass as, you know, the thing in which the universe contorts itself around. <laughs> All right, fine. Have it your way then. I, I'm really just trying to make it my way. But I, I'm just like, you know, so you're right. Maybe for giant, like very zoomed out categories that have very few properties, like matter is like stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Stuff you can poke. 
If I can't yeah. poke it, then it doesn't count, right? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. It, so I think it could work for very simple things like that. But I was thinking, I was looking around my my room here, and there, there's you know, everything in here shares some properties. I guess not least of which they're all it's all made of matter. So, <laughs> <laughs> is the idea of love made out of matter though? Hmm. But on the other hand, there isn't love floating around in your room. Mm, that's a good point too. Well, well, well. This did get deeply philosophical. <laughs> is love real, man? Ah, Define wow. real, uh, he said in his best Morpheus Im- uh, impression. If it is being simulated within the Matrix. So in that case, yes, love is real. I think love was like an after after that. Love wasn't being simulated. Love was love was real. The stuff was simulated. By in the Matrix, I, I just meant literally the world we're living in right now. Kind of my running gag thing. We are, we're all living in a simulation. But, but I mean, if, if, if I'm like just, just to run with that, as long as we're off in left field here in the in the movie, The Matrix, you know, uh, food and cars and stuff were all simulated, but mm. love and pain was all real. What? Oh, right. Because they appeared within the brains of people who were hooked into the Matrix. Right. Okay. See, I, I, I use the Matrix as shorthand for simulated reality so much that I actually forgot that there were real people hooked into a simulation. Well, I mean, even if, uh, yeah, I suppose if everything at bottom, if there was no top, right? Mm-hmm. Then yeah, then it would all be operating at the same level. But yeah, I guess what I was saying is like you know, there's actual people on the outside with their brains lighting up, right? That's kind of crazy that the definition of Matrix has drifted for me enough that I forgot that in the movie there's actually human bodies in the real world that are hooked up to this thing. I'm trying to decide if that actually makes a difference to the case I was making, but that is getting us too far afield. So mm-hmm. we're past left fields and we're out in the parking lot. Uh, okay, zooming back in. I would not object if someone said that birds are featherless or feathered flying things, but penguins don't fly. Well, fine. The usual rule has an exception. It's not the end of the world. The map is much smaller and less complicated than the territory. The point of the definition feathered flying things is to lead listener to the bird cluster. Exactly. Yeah. Seems, seems straightforward. It, it is a great definition of definitions. It points at something in the real world and how humans interact with it. So th- that is why this post has become so foundational. Yeah. No, I love it. All right, next ones we've got disguised queries and neural categories. Yes, we'll be talking about those two in two weeks. Come back for that then. Awesome. Uh, before we sign off, we have to do... Oh, no, we don't have to talk about Gilda Rose because Alex did that. But we do have to thank our patron. We did that too. What, we did? Yep. Oh, yeah. Okay, shit. All right, well, uh, you know what? If we didn't do the Gilda Rose and we didn't think the patron in this half of the show, I am comfortable calling this the last third of the show. All right, that works. Okay. <laughs> Bye.